Blog Talk Radio. in between. Live from Los Angeles, California, welcome to the Paranormal and the Sacred Radio Show with your host, Shaw McCain. Good evening, everyone. I'm your featured host, Shaw McCain, on Blog Talk Radio. I'd like to welcome listeners to the Paranormal and the Sacred Radio Show. My show is created to provide an open-minded platform that welcomes the gifted and extraordinary thinkers from every walk of life and circumstances. Please follow me on Facebook for upcoming events and special speakers from around the world. The call-in number tonight is 619-924-9744, and the Paranormal and the Sacred airs every Friday night at 6 p.m. Pacific Standard Time. And the Facebook is the Paranormal and the Sacred, and that's how you can find it. And we want to thank Tucker Smallwood for intro to our show, and we really appreciate it. And during the show, I can take questions in order in chat, and you may call in with your question and talk with our guest. And any buzz killers in chat or on the phone, sorry to say, you'll be kicked out. And I have a copy of the info, so I'm going to call you and bug you. So don't bug me and I won't bug you. So please be nice and um, polite, okay? And uh, I have a few announcements uh, to make. Uh, MUFON Los Angeles presents Preston Dinner. And is there an undersea base off the California coast? Some people I know said they think they've seen something off Malibu. Anyway, this is actually August 3rd, so it's coming up on Sunday, and it's at the Colony Theater. It's a really beautiful spot, and uh, they do go to uh, breakfast after. Anyway, the address is 555 North 3rd Street, Burbank, California. The doors open at 6.30 p.m., and the lecture starts at 7, and it's only 15 bucks at the door, and you get to meet a lot of uh, interesting people at these events uh, because a lot of the people, not only the speakers interesting, a lot of people in the audience are interesting. And now we have a new book available by Erica Ghosh. Uh, and I'll read Nick Redfern's comments about the book. Here's a new book I definitely recommend, Beyond the Fear, the Alien Equation. And it's written by Erica, and it's an excellent first-person and personal account of one woman's exposure to the UFO phenomena. It's extremely well-written and very intriguing, and it's now available on Amazon. And it's actually yours truly, Sean McCain, my story's in there and also Tom Reed's and among others, and it's really exciting, and uh, you'll love the book. You can get it on Amazon. Now, September 20th, uh, for Serial International, you can't miss this, it's at 7 p.m., and our speaker's going to be Grant Cameron. You know that he's been on the show, and uh, he's a fabulous wealth of information and experience. And uh, he's actually coming down from uh, Canada to be with us in person, so you'll get to meet him in his own personal UFO sightings, which led to years of research and his more recent work on a paper detailing 64 reasons the government is covering up the ET presence. Now, this is going to be excellent, and it's just so much information. He's a wonderful gentleman. And that's also going to be at 7 p.m., and it's to 10.30 p.m. They also go to breakfast after and speak with the speaker. And it's at the Veterans Memorial Complex, 4117 Overland Avenue, Culver City, California, 90230, and that's next to Sony Studios. 
And it's a very comfortable uh, thing. There's parking in the lot and also on the street side. So you can go to www.zerointernational.com for more information. And it's only 15 bucks at the door. So it's Grant Cameron, September 20th. And then now we have an event for our speaker tonight. And Saturday, October 25th, the so market calendar is at 10 a.m. in Tyler Rose City. There's a Comic-Con that she's going to be attending, and that's at 5701. South Broadway Avenue, that's in Tyler, Texas, and she's our paranormal profiler tonight, and it's a very extraordinary woman. And next week, our special guests are Ed Marshall, author and radio show host of The Paranormal Angels. They'll be discussing their book, True Haunting, an Amazon bestseller based on a true life story in the first broadcast of the exorcism. I love these people, and they're very forthcoming and loving, and uh, they're just a great bunch of people with some great fascinating book. I was so scared of that book I couldn't put it down, but you know, you can't read it and you can't put it down. You're looking over your shoulder. That's the way I spent reading that book. But anyway, it's called True Haunting, available on Amazon. At this point in our program, I'd like to introduce you to my awesome occasional co-host, and um, let me tell you a little bit about Adrian. Welcome, Adrian. Hello. Good evening, Sean. How are you doing? Good evening. Now, Adrian, I'm going to talk to you a little bit. I'll brag on you for a minute. Um, um, Adrian is a UFO contactee and blogger with the only site that explores the philosophical issues surrounding alien contact. And the address is www.ufophilosopher.com. And now that we have him live, I'd like to talk a little bit about his education. He's got an MA in philosophy. BA MA with in philosophy. What is, you, tell, you tell me. You can tell it better than me. Okay, you know, I got a master's with distinction. I graduated with honors. So... Yeah, you're amazing. You really are. So Thank I'm you. really yeah, excited I'm, um, about your work. I, I do look. Yeah, I tend my ufology. And, um, some have a somewhat incorrect definition of, of ufology. Ufology is an interdisciplinary term, and um, people bring in their specialty, whether they're journalists or whatever. And my specialty is looking at um, ufology from a philosophical perspective, using philosophical methodology, analytic style, of course. That's tradition. That's that I've learned, and um, so that's my contribution. And I'm, right now, I'm currently writing on a few essays. One that I'm finishing up uh, is on the nature of friendship between aliens and humans. Is it possible? Can can there be friendship and whatever? So, kind of exploratory. Um, the conclusions I've reached are actually unexpected and unsettling. That's all I'll say on that. <laughs> when it's up, yeah, I'll let you know. Yeah, amazing. So, you know, everybody Thanks. goes there to his blog, and uh, he has really a whole. In- interesting and unique take on this whole thing and he's a uh, well researched researched and uh just lo- I just love your work Adrian thank you so much thank you so now, much uh, you're welcome now Martha Hazard Decker yeah she's been involved in investigation she's amazing I don't know if you you were researching like we always do but uh, she's been involved in investigating paranormal act- activity since 1999 she's retired in 2007 from law enforcement as an assistant chief of police Officer, negotiator, detective, and instructor. And she founded the East Texas Paranormal in 2007. East Texas Paranormal also investigates private homes and businesses, and Decker has a professional experience as an investigator, criminally and civilly, as also a writer and a photographer. I've seen some of her work. It's really nice. And she decided to delve back into writing and photography and is working on a, another science, science nonfiction book with uh, writing for the examiner, under the Dallas Paranormal, I was reading some of her articles. They're really interesting, and she does some interesting interviews herself. 
and she spent a number of years working freelance and, and staff with several newspapers in around Dallas. And in 95, she was awarded first place for special reporting by Associated Press. And she uh, goes on to she had two blogs, one for the paranormal, and another one on life after 50. So she's encouraging us to, you know, live beyond 50. <laughs> I used to think it was 30, but 50. Just to have a big, full life like she's got. And she's got a bunch of stuff to tell us. So I'm going to call her into the show now. And let's see. Let's go back. And uh, you can make any comments you can while I'm getting this phone call in. Yeah, I'm just really intrigued about our topic about interview, how to interview clients on the paranormal activity, um, using that she's incorporating her background and into this. I find that very exciting to hear what she has to say about this. I do too. Just um, you know, it's like something forensically that that we should have thought of a long time ago, and I'm really glad somebody's doing it. Exactly. Hi, Martha. Yes. Hi, Martha. You're live with the Paranormal and the Sacred. or welcome you on the show. Well, thank you. I'm glad to be here. Welcome. Yeah, I, I read your bio, and uh, I'm introducing you to my co-host tonight, Adrian Rudnick. Good evening. Pleasure to meet you. Hello. Same here. Hello. So uh, we really just find the whole thing, the, all the work you're doing, very interesting. And uh, as as my tradition usually is that I ask you, where, where did you grow up, uh, Martha? Where did I grow up? Yeah, what kind of background do you have? Well, I was born in Detroit, Michigan. Lived in Sanford, Florida, and uh, Boston, Massachusetts. Well, I was a little small child, and my family settled. My father was in the Navy. My family settled in Memphis, Tennessee, because for whatever reason, my mother or my father liked the area. He was over at Millington uh, Navy Base, <laughs> and I spent most of my grow-up time there. We lived in, just outside New Orleans for a couple of years when I was in junior high, and then I moved to Texas, moved to Dallas, when I was 19. Spent a few summers here and there, summer in L.A., summer up in the north woods in Wisconsin. So I've been around. So you're used to traveling, and uh, I actually had a similar life. We, I think I even went to 13 different elementary schools. I can't even remember it all, but, you know, <laughs> that uh, we, we didn't have uh, anybody in the service to blame it on, but we were travelers. So uh, what's prepared you for the work, uh, what got you into doing uh, police work and things like that? Well, with the police work, I um, oh, I decided decided in my 30s that I was, I started out at 18 as a professional photographer, and then in my 30s I decided I was going to start working with newspapers, so I did, and uh, went from just photography into journalism. So I was a reporter as well. So while I was doing that, I was doing ride-alongs with, with, you know, different um, police departments. I was visiting fire departments on a daily basis. And uh, I just kind of 
took up with the police departments and uh, decided that that actually, while it didn't pay a lot, it paid better than um, the newspapers I had been working for. So I went in that direction, and it seemed to be a place where I could use a lot of different uh, skills I had acquired. I spent quite a number of years on a, a volunteer fire department. I was head of the, the uh, dive team. I, you know, I drove all the fire trucks, the engines, the water tanks, you name it, I drove it. And the journalistic background, I had won awards with that. And I was just um, probably in, that was like, I started that in the mid-80s and then I went full-time into law enforcement in the early 90s. And I was just looking for a place where I could take all these different skills I had acquired doing all the many different things that I had done through the years and use them in law enforcement seemed to fit the bill. And I really enjoyed that and took to that and had quite a few adventures during my years in law enforcement. Because I first started back in the mid-80s and I was the only female in the county at the time uh, as far as law enforcement went. So East Texas, mid-80s, only female was quite the quite took deep back then. Well, how did you cope with that? Well, I just did my job. I mean, I didn't really find anything I had to cope with. I just, I'm the type of person that if I decide I wanted to do something, I just go do it. You know, I thought it was kind of interesting that I was the only female. And then the department that I retired for, from, I went to work there in 93, and at the time uh, there was one other female in the county, and she was a deputy. And I think a year, maybe a year or a little less after I went to that department, I was made sergeant, and she was a sergeant with the sheriff's department, so you only had two females, and we were both, you know, sergeants. And we didn't, neither one of us encountered, as far as the law enforcement part, we never encountered anything really negative with that. There were a few, you know, a few East Texas males that I know I encountered that thought, you know, would you know? And uh, there were a couple officers that kind of thought that way. But by the time I left, of course, there were a lot of females out here. But after a few years, when they saw what you could do, they saw that they, you know, didn't have to worry about protecting you because you could handle yourself and you could, you know, drag them off if you needed to. It was not a big deal. That's you just great. handle it. You do what you have to do. You learn to do that working in a rural area. You have to learn to do that. And if you can't learn to do it, then you need to find something else to do because you're working in an area where your backup might take anywhere from 5 to 15 minutes to get there. So if you're depending on somebody else to handle it, you know, you're you're in trouble. You know, so you just you just have to learn. Well, it gives you a strength and uh you have to be uh aware of the big picture, safety, everything else all at the same time, but it it really uh makes you stronger. Uh, your character building, too. It's uh, amazing. I want to thank you for your service. Well, thank you. You're very welcome. Now, when when did you start getting interested in the paranormal? 
I started. I had. Yeah, yeah. I had experiences that I can't explain that I remember. You know, started. I was young, and uh, probably about '99 is when I really started investigating. Um, I was off for a year and had a uh, a drunk had totaled my squad car, and I was off for a year. I was off for about nine or ten months. Uh, in recovery from that injury, and that's when I really started to investigate. And that's also a way that I kind of would get away from law enforcement. Everybody, most people in law enforcement find their little thing, you know, guys may go hunting, and I would go either to Jefferson, which is a couple hours away, and uh, the whole downtown, just there's activity all over the place. But I would go there and I could, you know, you, you have to learn to turn off the law enforcement and the, um, as far as what's going on. Uh, and I would either do that or I'd go over to the casinos and have a good time. <laughs> One or the other, sometimes both. <laughs> it was kind of like my stress relief once I started investigating. Once I retired, I started the team. When you started um, having paranormal experiences, did your religious proclivities um, influence how you interpreted what was going on, or were you already open to certain sorts of things? I mean, what was your initial reaction when you first started having these experiences? Well, the first time I was about four or five years old, and I screamed for my daddy. <laughs> and, uh, you know, you know and, and as far as anything religious, that never has uh, influenced anything. I was... Um, I grew up Catholic, went to Catholic school from kindergarten to 12th grade. Uh, there were a couple of years where I, I think there were two years out of all that time where I was in a public school, and that was just because there was no room at the end and <laughs> at a school here or there. But, uh, you know, the, the parents are, you know, typical parents, you know, it's just a dream or you're just, you know, imagining things. I had a, a pretty creative imagination. And I wrote a lot back then, so they didn't really believe anything. And then as I got older, I just didn't say anything. And, uh, you know, my mother's 82 today, 82, and if I start talking about it, she just kind of rolls her eyes still. <laughs> you know, well, we just don't talk about it anymore. Being involved, yeah. Well, you know, yeah. you know families, they kind of take you for granted. Oh, that's her again. Yeah. You know, and I don't know if there's anybody else in the family that ever, you know, had anything happen to them. You know, my sister and I are a very, um, you know, empathetic, and I don't know if you would necessarily call us empaths, but, but you know, we're really big on, on the uh, feeling thing, and we always, it's just something we were, we've always had. And I think it may have, I don't know if it started when my mother started teaching us as young children the difference between having empathy and sympathy for somebody. Uh, and that may have just more than anything explained the difference to us because my sister and I have always had that empathy thing going on uh, with us. And that was a tough part in law enforcement, too. If I have to go do welfare checks, you know, or, um, you know, or, Somebody wakes up and their spouse, is, you know, died during the night, or 
uh, you know, give a death message, anything like that that you do, that was probably one of the most difficult things that I had to learn to steal myself because if some to this day, you know, if somebody starts crying, well, you know, I'm going to start crying. Whether it's a happy cry, happy cry, sad cry, you know, I just won $10 billion cry, you know, my, it's just an automatic response if I'm not careful. Uh, so. so that influences, you have, do you have to also turn those things off when you investigate the paranormal, or do you actually open up your empathic way so you can feel what's going on? Oh, well, I would open, I open it up when it comes to that because, you know, I can go into a place and the majority of the time I know if something's there or not there. I may not know what it is. I may not know, you know, male, female, all that, but I can just feel that something's there and I can feel when it's gone. Uh, you know, that's when I want to be open in that manner. I Sometimes I, you know, I use it in law enforcement, too. Uh, I would say that probably 98% of the houses with open doors and open windows that I would have to go search, I could pretty much tell if there was going to be a live body in there hiding. And I said mm-hmm. I was right more, almost every time. And that's if I could just have a minute or two where I could just kind of stand there by the door. I didn't even have to be inside. And just kind of feel, I guess. And I would know that there's somebody in there. And if we go through and you do, we do a building search and you can't find anybody, you know, I would say, you know, there's somebody in there. I just know it. There's somebody in there. We need to go back inside. And we would go back inside and we would hunt till we found them. And it worked almost 100% of the time. Uh, some of that works well with um, interviewing and interrogating as well. As far as whether you, you know, you're pretty sure, of course, there's a whole lot that goes into, you know, having that gut feeling that somebody's guilty or not guilty. Um, a lot of times, you go and um, sometimes you can tell right off the bat, you know, you know they did it and, and you know they're going to confess or sometimes you know, I don't care if I'm here five minutes or six hours, I'm just not going to get anything out of them. So, you know, you just learn to use it in, in your daily life as far as working with things like that. Yeah, it's using your wisdom, but also that, that's that hunt that... Uh the police talk about that also uh, has this turned into let's say you went into a place and then you knew that, that somebody was in there passed away have you felt any uh, residual effects or anything from that during um, your, your job as a police officer what, uh, well as far as that they had, that they uh, had passed away before I went in not like yeah. old stuff but just new stuff Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know. I just, I, you know, I don't know. I can't put so much of it up to gut feeling, but when I would do welfare checks, you know, I, it's like going up to a house and you know right off the bat whether there's somebody in there or there's not. It's just a feeling you get that it's just an empty house. Nobody's in there. 
And when you would go do a welfare check on somebody, maybe they haven't been able to get a hold of their elderly parent for a day or day or two. Um, I don't know. You just, I don't know. You know, I just would get a pretty good gut feeling of whether I'm going to find them alive or not. And most of the time, that was right. Yeah. Either way. So I don't know. I just I. I put it up to gut feeling for most of those years. And then as I, through the, through the last, you know, few years, as I get to know more and more, um, have more and more friends that I'm, you know, closer with who are, you know, psychic mediums and, and so on, you know, I'm just finding more and more what I put chalked up to that gut instinct. Was there a little yeah. more to it than that? Yeah, because I don't... Right, because it's just not really in my nature to think think paranormal or anything like that right off the bat. So you use that now in your that empathic sort of um, intuition in your paranormal investigation. Do you extending that? Do you also feel if something is malevolent or benevolent, good or bad, as it were? Oh, oh yeah, well, yeah, I do, and. and it's not just on the investigation I've had it other times in my life, and I learned many years ago if I get that sudden feeling of dread, the hair stands up on the back of your neck, it's just just out of nowhere you get this feeling, then there's, you know, you, I've learned you follow that feeling because something is not right. So I have always done that, and it's always saved me. Uh from something happening. I had a um, little shop many years ago that I sold quite a bit on the weekends during, you know, Thanksgiving to Christmas. And I might have had, you know, thousands, several thousand dollars with me by the end of the day. And I had these two guys coming up to the shop that every intention was to rob me. And I'm trying to figure out how to get out of this because I know what's going on. I've got that feeling. Um, And I wasn't wasn't doing any law enforcement at that time. And uh, the neighbor evidently got the same feeling, whether whether he picked it up from me or from those guys passing by, I don't know. But he came, and between the two of us, that just ruined what they were going to do. Um, I've had the same thing when I've had to go out on an alarm call. When I worked in law enforcement, you get used to going and walking around houses when alarms go off, looking for open windows and doors, checking everything, you know, in the middle of the night. And um, But it's always important not to become complacent because just about the time you do, you're going to run into a real burglary. And I've had a couple times where I've gone and gotten out of the car and something's telling me to call for backup, you know, don't go. And um, then we find open doors or open windows at that time. You know, maybe we didn't find anybody in there, but just something was there. Um, I had a time where I was trying to do a newspaper article about a, um, the original jail in the county where I worked. Uh, from the 1800s was over on on somebody's property and they were going to donate it to the county. So I was going to go over there and it's like a ranch or farm and go take pictures of it. 
you know, I'm not thinking of any, back then I wasn't, you know, that was paranormal or anything was the last thing really on my mind. Uh, this would have been in the 80s. And uh, like I said, that's not the first thing I jumped to, and I still don't jump to it right, aw- right away today. And I couldn't even get out of my car. Just the feeling over there was not good. So I had went and I got somebody to come back with me. And having somebody else with me, I still, the feeling was still there, but, you know, it's like I pushed through it and went and did what I needed to do, took my pictures, and uh, I wish I had the negatives so I could look at them a little bit better now and see if there's anything in there. So, you know, you never know when it's going to hit you. You use a lot of pathic stuff in your line of work too, huh, Shar? Oh, yeah, I do. I don't know, uh, Martha, I don't know if you know that I'm a forensic counselor for uh, federal prisoners. So, so that's what I, I do for a living. So, uh, oh, do you? I use, uh, yeah, I use a lot of that in the work I do. And that's, I still well, that's, am currently doing that. Okay, well, that's cool. I didn't know that. I do know I did yeah. some... Got my my um, I'm a process server too, but I just got my uh, private investigator license. And the person that I am am working with on this, Deborah Rose, uh, with uh, ISGU, does uh, profiling, handwriting analysis, a lot of forensic stuff herself. So we're working on doing some things along that line as well. She does the um, you know, does the interviewing, uh, the profiling and interviewing of suspects sometimes and and, and uh, jury profiling, all sorts of things like that. That's so really that's interesting. I have done a study graph analysis for a little while. It's interesting. I guess it all kind of, the interest goes together trying to uh, profile somebody. Now, uh, when did you start your, because uh, your book is uh, The Paranormal Profiler. It's available on Amazon. Uh, just the whole premise is so unusual that you're using your uh, forensic gifts, you know, to profile uh, people having issues with the paranormal. Right. And I don't know, you know, I just started doing that. I mean, they kind of go together. A lot of the stuff that you do when you interview for law enforcement or many other things, like, you know, even if it's HR, you can take those same skills and you can apply them to interviewing uh, witnesses, potential clients, uh, you know, all those people to help you determine because people don't always, one, they don't always tell you the whole, whole story. They may be embarrassed and they may be making it up because they just want to be on TV or something or they want their business to be able to be counted as a haunted business and, you know, commercialize on it. So you yeah, utilize what you've learned in your yeah. po- police work as far as being able to ascertain if the person is, you know, BSing you or not. Or are you paying attention to body language, speech patterns, both? I mean, what are the kind of things you pay attention to to make sure that person is on the up and up? Well, you pay attention to all of that because you can't really go on just one you know, one thing they're doing. You know, some people think, you know, if they look up to the left or look up to the right, they're, you know, lying or not lying, and, and that's not used so much anymore. And you also need to know if that person is a left-handed or right-handed person because they're going to look up to rec- recall 
in, in opposite directions based on, on what hand is their dominant hand. So if you don't know that, then you're not going to make correct assessment, and that's just one indicator you should use. Um, there's, you know, sometimes they're just nervous. Um, building rapport with them helps you a little bit. Uh, there's, you know, there are people that I've talked to with the groups, they get a phone call from somebody, and they just go straight in and they believe them 100%, which, you know, is not maybe not that unusual. It's just that I look at it differently. I'm kind of, you know, wired a little bit different. And not that I think everybody's a liar because that's not true, but you go in, I guess you learn to go in and be more unbiased. You don't, you know, you don't go in biased either way. Oh, they're making it up or they're telling the truth. You just go in. You get the facts, and then when you start interviewing other people, too, which is always good, um, you're looking for things that you can corroborate that client or that witness's statement with, because that helps build their credibility to help you really determine are they telling the truth or not, or are they just leaving out maybe the most important part because they're ashamed or embarrassed. So you do, you learn to watch their body language. Are they open to you? Are they closed off to you? Um, you know, it's important to ask questions that to me sometimes feel like a jailbook in because you're asking them about their mental health or medical health. You know, are they under doctor's care? Are they on prescription drugs? Are they on drugs? Do they have a criminal record? You know, have they been arrested? What for? What kind of medications do they take? You just you know, a whole myriad of things that are important to know to help you with your assessment. I mean, some people are really good liars and they can cry, they can really, really work it. How are you able to go through that to be able to not to get caught up in all that emotion and realize, you know something, I think this person's trying to pull one over on me. Well, probably the, one of the easiest ways to do this is when you go talk to somebody, before you get into all the personal detail even, and even though you've maybe talked to them and done partial, if not a lengthy interview over the phone, is you ask them to tell their story. You ask them to tell you what happened. And you let them tell their story. And once they're through with their story, because you're, you know, there's notes being made. Um, it's like we... Uh, do audio and video when we do interviews, and there's two of us that go generally so that one can take notes while the other one asks questions and, and, and watches them. Um, but once you get their story, it's important to go back and fill in the blanks. Instead of interrupting them, let them finish their story, and you just make notes so you can go back, say they're, because if they're telling the truth, you're going to have detail. Um, usually when you make up a story, usually, you're not going to have the detail. A uh, good example would be doing a criminal interdiction on the road. You stop a car and, you know, you see everybody's seen it on Cops or all the other shows. You talk to someone, you know, where are you coming from, my friends? Where's your friend live? Down the street? You know, what's your friend's name? And they don't have any detail to fill in the blanks. They're just giving you something very general. Uh, so if you're interviewing someone and they're doing that, you go back and get fill in the blanks 
uh, of course it helps to ask them to explain everything. Someone will ask, you may say that, you know, I know it's bad or it's evil, and you go back and you, and you ask them to explain what what do you mean by that? What you know what's happened? Or they say it's you know it's cussing, it's cussed at me. Well, what you know what was said? You ask for the specifics because it's hard to make up a lot of specifics and keep track of your story. Plus, if it's legitimate, you need to know that information anyway because everybody's idea of something is different. Your idea of cussing may be different than the client. The client's idea of cussing may be nothing. I had a friend, a really good friend growing up, had a real religious background. And I, when we were small kids, I said something to her like, I swear, Kathy. And then I got a 30-minute lecture on, on cussing and swearing. When I had said, I swear. So to me, you know, so that's, you know, that's a good example of a difference. Everybody has a different take. I had a lady, an elderly lady, telling me once about uh, break-in or something that is criminal mischief or something, and and um, she was giving me a description of the suspect, and she says he was a uh, it was a young person, it was a young man. In my mind, when you say, or it's actually called them a youngster, it was a youngster. In my mind, I'm thinking a teenager, maybe. So I asked her, you know, well, what do you mean by that? About how old do you think they were? And she said, oh, in his 50s. <laughs> <laughs> See what I mean? So it's really important to get the descriptions and get as much detail out of them uh, as you can because if it's really happening, they're going to have detail and you can ask them about it, you know, six different ways and they're always going to come back and be consistent. It's when they become inconsistent that you wonder about it. Are men or women bitter liars? Your experience. Oh, God. <laughs> <laughs> maybe, ghosts, maybe ghosts, too. I mean, who are the most that tend to be, you know, um, try to pull one over on you? Or is it doesn't make any difference in your experience? It's equal, but I tell you what, if it's a female that goes to jail, they're worse than guys. Women drunks are the worst ones to deal with, but anything else is about 50-50. <laughs> what do you think about that, Shar? Well, um, I can see that uh, when we, women get drunk, they actually want to tear down the whole place with them. That's probably what's happening. You know, they're degraded, <laughs> they're mad, so they're going to start saying everything in the book, and you know what I mean? And then you don't want to hit them, you know, because they're out of line, but oh well, it's, it's, it doesn't sound nice to me. Anyway, <laughs> uh, now, you were re- recovering from... Um, your crash. Now that was in '99, and you began. You uh, actually, that's when your paranormal investigation started. Right. You actually crashed with your police car, right? Yes, uh, my car was totaled by a drunk. Oh boy. Yeah. Yeah, it was almost a head-on collision. Collision with a drunk, and I went back after nine months. I probably should have waited another two or three, but. I felt like once I could get up and take care of myself, if I got knocked over in a, a fight, I was good to go. And I wanted to go back to work. 
so that's when you actually started conducting your paranormal investigations. Yeah, during that time when I was off, uh, during my recovery, um, I had a leg that had seven bright silver compounds, oh. and I had not, not had any broken bones, and I had no idea how difficult and painful it was to start walking again. So as I got to where and I had screw, I've got a, a steel rod. I have one screw. Another screw's gone. The pins are gone. But once I started walking again, it was part of my therapy. I just was decided to start going places. And the, actually the first place that uh, Tamara and I went to, Tamara's on my team, uh, and she's a former deputy, we went to the Myrtle uh, Plantation down in Louisiana as our first place to go. I couldn't walk a lot, but mm-hmm. we had some interesting experiences while we were there. That was probably the first. Um, that was the first time we did go somewhere. And then there were a lot of trips to Jefferson and, um, and other places that we went. And as far as, you know, and sometimes, go ahead. Oh, well, what happened at Myrtle Plantation? Because this is your first okay. investigation. So describe to the listeners, you know, what happened. This is your first, very first investigation. Well, that was my very first, my very first time in any place that was purported to be haunted. And uh, we were upstairs. I used, uh, I had been using a walker and I just switched to a cane, so I couldn't get along, get get along, get around very well. Um, and I'm thinking, uh, once we go get up to the room, uh, if anything happens, I'm just going to keep my eyes closed. I'm not going to get up in the middle of the night because I might see something. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> you know, <laughs> because Tamara was asleep instantly in there. Of course, I wanted to kind of be up. Everything was quiet. We had met everybody that was staying at the Myrtles. We all hung out in the courtyard, and then we kind of, you know, kind of wandered around and uh, saw everybody's room. Everybody took pictures. You know, we just did a little investigation stuff that way. But um, when I did go to sleep, I was I was sound asleep, and I was awakened by this most blood-curdling scream. But it was like the scream of a toddler, and it was right in my ear. It was like deafening. Woke me up, you know, I'm still hearing it as, you know, how you wake up to a loud noise and you hear, like, the end of it, but you still hear the noise. So I figured, that's Tamara just messing with me. Yeah, she was out cold. The next morning we discovered that the room we had stayed in was part of the nursery. They had taken the nursery and made it into two rooms, and, of course, they had several children die in the nursery. And I found out that the rocker, rocking chair in our room sometimes rocked. Um, and this was, you know, the, the digital cameras were kind of in their infancy back then. And we both had a digital camera. We took pictures of each other in front of the big mirror where the frame is original. They keep changing the glass out because it keeps streaking. Well, there was oh, a yeah. picture. I said, hmm? I remember that. I remember that case. Yeah. Well, let me tell you, we had we had pictures with each one of us standing in front of the mirror. One had 
the uh, voodoo priestess in the mirror, and the other had the uh, um, the slave uh, that had her ear foley in it. Plain as day, they showed up in the in the mirror pictures, and I remember my husband kept going by the computer and looking at those pictures for weeks because, I mean, he could see he didn't knew nothing of the history, and he could see those. And at the time, there was a big old fluffy cat that just showed up and had been around there for a few years. And people would take pictures of the cat, and then when they would get their film back, instead of the cat being there, uh, we we saw some pictures when we were there. It was like just a spark of light where the cat should be. Well, my cat was on the porch when I was taking a picture of the the porch, so the cat was not the focus of the photo. So it wasn't large enough for me to really enlarge it really well without losing the integrity with those early um, digital cameras. But my cat looks like a dead cat in my picture. The cat's sitting there. The fur is all mottled, um, like you see on the dead animals. You can see the ribs. You know, like there's no fur there. There's no skin there. It's just a dead cat where you can see the craziest picture I've ever seen. Oh. Oh, and you could hear, like, a party going on downstairs where you hear muffled voices. I heard furniture being moved around during the night. So there were things going on there while we were there. How long did you stay there? We were just there that one night. Yeah, that's... that's and then we went down... Yeah. Went, Go ahead. It would have been, nice, yeah, been nice to stay a second night, but we headed on into New Orleans from there. Now, New Orleans is considered one of the most haunted places in America. Right. So so how was your investigations there? We didn't do any investigations while we were there. We stayed at a Holiday Inn. Nothing happened. It took me two hours to walk to walk six blocks to the Voodoo Museum. Uh, and then two hours to walk back, so we didn't do any walking tours. Just didn't do do much because I was Gosh. still, you know, in the early recovery stages. And uh, you know, then we started going up to uh, Jefferson after that, um, and a few other places. And then it just, you know, snowballed from there once I got better. Yeah, so you were and just we literally. Started- Work and your early creation of uh, of what you're doing uh, today. Today, and um, right. How did you pick your paranormal team? Because you said you had a team. Uh, what was important to you, and and who are the, who, who's your team consist of? Well, my team is, has changed, you know, a few times through the years. At one time, everybody but one of us were either current or former law enforcement. Now it's a little bit different of a mix. We still have current former law enforcement in there. We have um, two members who were our former um, members of MUFON. One used to be a president of the Dallas chapter. We have her, uh, she and her husband are team. We have Nancy Davis, who was uh, MUFON down in uh, uh, Corpus. She was also raised... Um, in a spiritualist family. So we have that. We have Maria Santos, who is our a psychic medium. Um, 
We have uh, Tim Smith is one of our technical guys. And uh, so we have several who are current former law enforcement. Um, Carrie, Carrie Jones is also an author, and she's former law enforcement. Then we have her husband, Dave Jones. And we have a Josh Cloutier, who's a current law enforcement. We have a Rita Louise. Dr. Rita Louise is a member of our team. Um, yeah, I know her. Yeah. Yeah, and... Uh, I'm trying to think, make sure I didn't leave anybody out. Um, but we try to keep a wide variety of people in our team. Um, I mean, we have, of course, Tamara I talked about, who's, uh, you know, the original member, um, who was also former deputy. We have Wendy Cox uh, as one of our team members. We have Sam Epps. Sam was in law enforcement at one time um, also. So we try to keep it kind of rounded out. We also have Pat Lang as one of our um, consultants that, that uh, we will contact sometimes about a case because we also will work serious. Some of us will work serious cases as well. Um, most of the things we do are for private, you know, individuals or businesses. Uh, you know, based on them calling us. Do paranormal groups, do you guys share each other's techniques and approaches as a way to um, advance paranormal research, or is everybody pretty much secretive as far as their craft? Well, you know, some of them are. Some people don't want to associate with any teams at all. Um, we're open about our, our group. We're open about what we do. We're open about, you know, helping uh, teach somebody, mentor somebody because everybody has to start somewhere. And uh, we had tried this last year, but between all of us, we were just so busy with so many different projects. We had wanted to do a uh, training session at one of the um, old historical homes that we have access to, um, have a day or an afternoon of training on different uh, equipment, different methods, and then have an investigation that night. And we may try to do that this this fall maybe. Um, but I was an instructor in law enforcement for a long time, so it's kind of part of how I think or what I do is to share. And even not being an instructor, we shared a lot of things, and just a lot of people don't. But we try to share with everybody. Because the more people who can get knowledge and who can learn things, you know, the better they can do and the better they can teach other people to do things. I always recommend to young people that are young people or anybody really that's thinking about getting into this field or, you know, is interested in it is to read books, go to conferences, you know, sit in on the speakers and uh, network with people because that's how you learn. Get into some of the groups on Facebook, you know. Be careful, you know, on Facebook too, because there's a lot of, you know, things that may be disseminated that aren't true, or sometimes you get into all the drama. But, you know, stay away from that part. And, you know, you should do well, but just but learn, constant, constantly learn. We're still doing that. I'm still doing that. You know, you never get too old, and you never know enough to not continue to 
to learn. And as far as I understand, the culture of the paranormal researchers, um, in other words, you guys don't charge. It's it's done all out of good goodwill because for the the advancement of finding out what's going on. Is that correct? As far as I understand, it's it's like it's frowned upon for those that are trying to do it just for the money. Right, it is frowned upon uh, when you're going in to do, you know. I mean, if you're not holding an event, but you're actually doing an investigation for a client, it is frowned on to um, request money. Some people do. I mean, you know, some groups do it and, and most don't. Most of us do it where it's like a service organization. You know, we volunteer our time. We pay for our own gas. We pay for, you know, whatever. We buy our own equipment. And some, you know, now if you want to fundraise, you know, that's different. But as far as charging clients, you know, we never do that. And we have no plans of doing that. Now, Martha, what are ghosts to you? Would you consider, do you, what are they to you? Are they, are they demons? Are they life people that go on? Uh, what is the what ghost and, and uh, where are they living? Well, if you can figure that out, I would like to know. Okay. Because, <laughs> you know, that's something that we don't really know. Do I think a ghost is evil? Absolutely not. Um, do I think that there's good and evil out there? Yes, I do. Um, you know, and I have felt bad. And does that bad mean that that was a demon? Not necessarily so. You know, and I mean, there's the theories and what we think of in our society today is ghosts. And if you go based on that, just because somebody, you know, dies who was, you know, an ornery old coot in real life, doesn't mean that they're going to be all goody 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 when they're gone if they decide to hang around for whatever reason. You know, they can be just as ornery in death as in life. Um, That doesn't automatically change them. So maybe you have somebody around, you know, if it's people, if it's somebody through a wormhole, another dimension, you know, I don't know. You know, we have our ideas of ghosts, but whether it's correct or not, I have no way of knowing that either. Could it be, uh, could it be a gin instead of a ghost? Could it be a gin instead of a demon? I mean, there's so many things that we just don't understand about it yet. There seems to be like, I mean, from what I understand, different kinds of ghost sightings, like there could be ones that interact with you. You can correct me if I'm wrong. Interact with you, and then others seems to be more like an imprint of an experience where it's just like at a certain time at a certain place an experience sure. being played out, and they're not even aware that you're there, maybe because they're not even sentient, but it's like a metaphysical sort of an imprint. Do you categorize these sorts of things um, after many years of uh, your experience, investigation? Uh, I guess you could say so. You know, that imprint, that's like just watching a you know, video over and over, and that imprint left in, it left in a location doesn't have to be from the dead. It can also be from the living. It's this imprint of energy of something that occurred there. So that imprint can be anything. Um, And then you have, yeah, what we call more of the intelligent, and that's something that's responsive to you, Um, whether, you know, however your method, whatever method you're using to try to communicate with something and you're getting some form of communication. And, you know, are you dealing with what, 
you know, as far as are you dealing with a person that used to be there or something else, you know, about all you can, I can go on is what information I may receive. And that's why, you know, we, we're glad that we ha also have a psychic. Some people don't like to use psychic mediums in their investigations, but that's something that can be very handy as a tool. You know, we use, we use Maria as a tool. As a guide, it just kind of helps helps us. It, it's it's like using maybe three or four or five different um, uh, meters for your EMF. You know, you have a, a variety of them there, and you're seeing how they interact as well too. You know, does one thing light up, or do you get a reading off of three all of them, or or you know, it, it's just another. There's they're just another tool to help you try to understand what you're dealing with. Have you seen a ghost? Yes. What, what yes. did it look like to you? Well, I've seen a full body look like you and me type of um, ghost. Uh, there was a, an investigation that I did. I was going to a lady's house. Tara and I were going to a lady's house for the interview. And as we go past the house, because I was going somewhere else first and coming back, I'm looking at the house because we were, you know, trying to figure out which house it was. And I see a man up top of the hill in between two, two pickups. This was a little ranch. And he's, you know, six foot tall or so. He's, he's you know, kind of stocky. He's over there in his, his overalls, his straw hat, the whole cowboy boots, you know, the whole kit and caboodle. And as we go by, I tell Tammy, I hope he, you know, I hope he doesn't um, think that we're not coming back to the house, that we're just going to drive by. And, of course, my next thought was, well, how would he know that? Because he doesn't know what we look like or what I drive. So we go back to the house and interview the lady and talk to her for a while. She's there. Her granddaughter's there. That was, that was it. And so I, you know, question her, you know, about who, you know, who lives in the house? It was just them. I asked about who was the, the man who was there, you know, about an hour earlier, and I just she asked me to describe him, and she just starts grinning, and she goes, that was my husband. And she, she was a widow, and there was a picture of him right on the bookcase, and that was exactly, you know, that, I mean, the whole getup was the same outfit. It's something that he wore all the time. He was on his tractor and in the picture, um, I've seen him. I've seen, you know, solid shadow people in the past. Uh, plus, you just see, you know, I see like I've seen, you know, I've just seen throughout the years several of them. And, you know, I didn't know he was not alive when I saw him. So who knows if I've seen others or not. I wouldn't have a clue because I didn't know he was living when I saw him initially. Do you prefer to investigate nights or days? I mean, it seems like a lot of them like to do it during the night. I mean, do you think it makes a difference? Also, a corollary question, how long do you, how much time do you spend at a place when you decide, okay, we're going to investigate this place? Um, we investigate day and night. Uh, when we work with people, we ask them to keep a log 
and see if there's any kind of pattern, if the activity only happens at night, well, then we're probably going to investigate there at night. Um, but if it happens off and on all the time, most likely it's going to be daytime. I know some people like to only investigate at night because they think they can see the shadows better, but I've seen shadows in the daytime as well. Uh, TV likes to do it at night for drama. Um, mm -hmm. You know, some of us are, I'd say a good majority of my team is over 50, and we also have safety in mind, too. And uh, some of the places that we've investigated have not been the safest places, so the safest time to go is during the day so you don't, you know, fall through a floor or try to step on a floor that's not there, uh, or, you know, or knock wall down on top of you. So it just depends on when we go. We have no preference. It it, it just depends. Uh, what was the other part of the question? How long How long do you oh, stay? Uh, it seems like do you just do an overnighter or a day or an hour or sometimes a couple of days. I mean, sometimes, like I noticed on some of, some of these programs, they'll do like a night or whatever, and then then they're gone. Even after they get some really cool things happening, I would think, no, stay there some more, get some more information. I mean, how does how do you guys work? Well, it depends. I mean, we could be there as little as two hours. We could be there overnight, and that could be the first time we may go back more than once. We may do two or three you know, or four investigations over a period of time. We usually don't stay more than one day at a time but because we'll go back and review everything and see if there's anything there or not. And uh, sometimes they're at a distance, so, you know, we have to come back later. We um, never just run in and do something and then don't contact the people back. Uh, because we're all about, you know, if there's something there, helping them fix the problem, helping them understand the problem, getting them whatever help they need. One of our funniest ones, our suggestion to them, uh, to the couple was that they needed to go to marriage counseling, and that would mm. probably fix the problem. <laughs> yes, because um, I was wondering if it was poltergeist activity, it kind of tends to be with what's going on with the emotions of the people that live there. Well, it can. And this one, um, this we normally do the phone interview, then we do a full in-depth interview in person before we ever uh, do an investigation. And this one wasn't that far away. The lady who called was part of a paranormal team, and she was a, a paramedic. So, you know, we pretty much took her at her, you know, Took her to be a credible person. Yeah, yeah, took her to be credible. And um, she was talking about a male entity or that there was just something kind of dark going on at the house and her team had been there. Nobody could find anything. So we go over there, um, try to call her on the way. She's not there. Get to the house. Not Still not answering the phone. Nobody's at the house. We're not really happy because we gave up our you know, our time, and um, while we're getting, as we're getting ready to leave, the husband comes out of the back of the house, and uh, he has no idea that we were coming. She's not even staying at the house because they've been having problems. So he calls her 
and she comes over and we do somewhat of an investigation, but we pretty much felt right off the bat that there, while there was something there, it wasn't anything, it was more at the time of a residual type thing. The house was a pre-Civil War part of it. The landlord lived next door now, but the landlord had been in the house with her husband, and there was um, a lot of domestic violence while they were there. During one of the fights, he Feller was pushed out the back door and down the steps and he died. So she got the insurance money to build a house next door. And back in the area where he fell out, you know, and down the stairs, you could it felt different there and we felt like there was possibly something there, but we felt stronger that the two were fighting so much that were there now that where she had called us in that they were creating the negativity themselves and they were building it up and building it up and building it up. And as long as they were doing that, that was going to be stronger than anything, you know, that this time I have done, may have done. And that's why our biggest recommendation to them was marriage counseling. If you're going to decide to stay together, go get some counseling and quit creating this negative energy. And you'll probably be happier because they were they were happier away, but they weren't fighting if they weren't there. So it was just building and building, mainly because of them. Now, have you ever found um, since you're an empath, and uh, uh, the psychic mediums go with you on your investigations? Do you ever feel feel uh, oppressed by a spirit or depressed? Uh, by some entity in there? Has it affected you guys? Um, sometimes we usually do um, protection, you know, before and after, sometimes during. Um, we ha- sometimes do have a team member that may feel affected and may get sick to their stomach or get a severe headache. That's happened a few times, not many times, but it has happened, and when that does, it usually, you know, it'll go away. They'll leave the area immediately, and then they're usually fine because this hasn't been in any location where there's been necessarily anything really bad, but sometimes they just pick up on maybe something that was a, a some violence that had occurred in the past. Um, example, camera was over at uh, one of the houses that we go to um, near here that we can go to and uh, continue to investigate. Sometimes we have a site that, that we just go to over and over and over again um, just for research. And when she, and she'd been at the house a number of times, then she came in one, one, one day while there was a, a, an investigation going on and what she didn't know was that some items, this is also a museum, the, the house we go to, that there were items placed in a room that belonged to a doctor who wasn't the best kind of doctor. And he had been, uh, he suffered a violent death. His, um, he was an elderly man. He had a young boyfriend, like in his, uh, I'm not sure of the exact age, so I don't really want to say, but he was very young. 
and he violently beat the doctor to death. But I went to the doctor's estate sale, not knowing anything about his history at the time when he died, you know, quite a few years back. And the estate sale, he also lived where his clinic was. And I can tell you, the second I walked in that door till I walked out, I felt like somebody was following me all the way through there. They didn't like me there. They didn't want me there. I just couldn't shake that feeling until I left. And when I walked into that room, because I didn't know it the first time that I went in there after that doctor's stuff had been placed in that house that was also a museum. And the second I walked in that room, I had the same feeling that I had when I was in the doctor's clinic. You know, not it was different than other bad feeling. It was the exact same feeling when I looked and I saw the items. I knew exactly whose belongings were there. And kind of what we've been able to possibly determine since then is that the owner of the house, the original owner of the house and his family, um, and they built the house in the early 1900s, are not happy that this doctor's stuff is in their house because of things that have has occurred with them. But while Tamara was in in the room because she didn't she didn't know anything about this, she got so sick to her stomach that you know she had to leave. She also was overwhelmed on the way up by a real foul stench or or more of a death. It was a smell of death and. Um, and she went, she was fine downstairs and went downstairs. But I've had a couple other people come up since then with the doctor's stuff there and they get that same smell when they get up to the second floor in the same area. And none of that was there either before the doctor's things were brought in. What, now, are, shadow, what are shadow people? I've always wondered about that. Are they actually, well, what they are, are, they actually are they ghosts or are they something totally just different? Well, I don't think anybody knows that. Um, it would be nice to know, and there's all kinds of theories, and, and there's medical theories about just seeing something out of the corner of your eye as a shadow person. And, you know, there's uh, something uh, medically with your eyes, and I'm, I'm not a doctor, so I can't really get into all this, the medical stuff on that. They can cause they can cause you to see things out of the corner of your eyes that you feel are shadows. But I have seen them full on, you know, standing there like us in some active locations where you can watch them walk across a room and they're just a shadow. And who knows what that is? I have no idea what it is. I know that I had a shadow person, and shadow just because, you know, all you see is a dark shadow. Come into my room when I was 19, two nights in a row, and sit down on the edge of a bed that was by the door which faced the hall. It came in, and it looked like a druid monk is the best description. It was tall, looked like it had on the same, you know, was dressed just like you would envision, a, we would envision a druid. And I remember the face was darker than the, where the face would have been was darker than the rest of the outfit. 
um, came in my room two nights in a row and sat down. I was awake. I thought two nights. It never scared me. I never felt uncomfortable. I felt like it was there for protection from what? I have no idea. I have had several incidents in my life where I have something like like that. Not quite like that that looked like a, a druid, but things that have come and I felt like there was protection. And I don't know what it was. And I don't know what shadow people are. And I don't know what this druid was either that came in there when I was 19 for those two nights. I, you know, it would be great to know what that was, but I don't have a clue. Is it an alien? Is it, you know, interdim- interdimensional or, or what? Who knows? Hmm. I just, you know, I'm just one of those, I just keep an open mind because there's so many things that we really don't know. But they and, seem and, to be uh, different. Every time I hear people talk about shadow people, it seems to be more of there. They're more interactive. They're they're not. It's not a repeating pattern, correct? Right, right. Um, the ones I well, I wouldn't know because I'm not go go to the same place day after day, so I couldn't necessarily tell if it was something that was re- repetitive or not. But um, there's a hospital up in uh, East Texas, Northeast Texas, that I've been in several times. And I see activity over there as shadow people that, you know, you may think it's, it's, it's medical, it's a doctor going here, a doctor going there, or a nurse. You pick up on things like that. And, and when I go, I see different things every time I go. I don't always see the same thing. So I don't, you know, I don't know if it's just something at this point that's repetitive or not. Uh, when I see him, I may see something somewhere and not ever see it again. So I don't know. What would you like to investigate? Like, what would be an ideal spot uh, that you haven't investigated yet, but you're really curious about? Um, probably, if I could just go investigate almost anywhere. There's well, I've got a couple locations, but the one that I would really like to go to is a place that made a big impression on me when I was in my 20s. And I was, you know, I said I don't normally go to paranormal right away. (laughs) And while I've had things, I wasn't thinking about it as much then. But I've always gone to historical sites. I've always been drawn to history. And back in my 20s, I was at Fort Sumter. And while I was there, it... The, the feeling of the soldiers were so strong that I kept looking around because I felt like back then that they were just going to come walking out of the walls at any time. And uh, I've always wanted to go back over there. I just, you know, there's not really any reason why I haven't. I just haven't made the trip to the East Coast to go back there again. But that's probably the one I would really like to do. Well, for Sumter, I mean, they're still seeing... Uh, apparitions uh, day and night. There's so much uh, suffering there. Adrian, do you know the story behind uh, Fort Sumter? Sumter? No, I I slipped my mind. Go ahead and illuminate that for me or to us. Well, uh, if I'm correct, Martha, isn't that where they kept a lot of prisoners of war too? I think they did, and I didn't even realize back then, you know, I mean, you grow up, you know, learning the history you know, with war and Fort Sumter, but I didn't realize it was an island until I was up there and, and went out to the island. And you could just, it was just a, 
feeling of, of you know, they're not attributed to history. It's just so strong there. And, of course, I didn't think to ask anybody about anything because I was just doing what I normally did. I'd like to go to places that were old and historical and try to put myself back in time, kind of, and, you know, see and, and feel the empathy thing again, how it would have been to be there at that, you know, back then with everything going on. But, yeah, I think, yeah, they talk about stuff now all the time. Do you make a distinction between ghosts and spirits? Some supposedly do, and I was wondering if you do. What, What was, I couldn't hear the whole question. Oh, do you make a distinction between the words ghost and spirit, or are they the same thing for you? Uh, well, they're really the same thing. I mean, people use them interchangeably. I like to use spirit. Sometimes I use ghost. We don't really know what, you know, ghost is. But um, spirit, and if you're talking to, um, you know, I've worked with some people that were very religious, um, uh, Church of Christ, for example, and and um, they've had acti- people, there was one family that had activity, and it was very against then they were very devout Church of Christ, so all of it was so against their belief, and uh, you know because it was definitely you know evil and devil and all this to have anything going on. So they're having to learn something that's not what they've been taught and have always believed. So I just I, I you know sometimes I'll use spirit more. It just depends on really who I'm around. Probably the term that I don't like the most is ghost hunter. Hunting. I just, you know, I'm an investigator. I'm not a hunter. I don't have to go hunting. You know, it means the same to them. It's not a big deal. Martha, but I think your phone's messed up a little bit. I think you just uh, turn, turn it a little bit to straighten the signal out. Oh, I thought it was just me. Okay, it was happening in my end, too. Oh, it was? Okay, okay. how's it? That's there better. Yeah, it's a lot better. Let me give a little background on the Fort Sumter. Is a Fort Sumter located in Charleston Harbor, South Carolina, is a distinction of being the site of the first act of aggression in the Civil War. And it was with most places of history there was tales of ghosts surrounding Fort Sumter. And um there is a so many people died there, uh that uh the sense that day they reported seeing ghosts of at least a Union soldier at the fort. Others reported seeing smoke and smelling gunpowder. So that's what's the violence, and actually that's where it all started. That was the first, uh, well, the initial gunshot yeah. for the start of the whole war. Yeah, that shot heard around the world kind of thing, that was it, yeah. yeah. Wow. Yeah, yeah I did so not know days, that. I'm going to get up there. Yeah. Okay, so... um. Well, tell us about your book, some more about uh, the investigations that you uh, feel that are important. And uh, have you ever just gotten scared and took off when you're on assignment? <laughs> uh, no, I've never. Excuse me, people, and take off. <laughs> no, you never heard run, dude, out of my mouth. <laughs> okay. <laughs> oh, excuse now, me, run. <laughs> 
No, that, <laughs> if anything, that would have been with real people. But, yeah, but you know, but I, I just, I've never, yeah, I've never taken off from anywhere. Um, I've never stopped investigating because I felt uncomfortable. Um, sometimes you may stop in one area and, and move on and then go back to the area later because it just didn't feel right, but at the time. So you were, but, never, you know, you were never physically attacked or anything like that? No, I never have been. I've had people, I've had it happen to people around me, but not to me uh, for whatever reason. Um, could you share some of that? I mean, what happens? Do they get their shirts pulled or do they get knocked down? What kind of things um, did you hear occurring? Well, I've been, uh, let's see, I was, so a couple of years ago, I was at a conference down at Mushai um, Mansion in Sabine, Texas. And uh, so there were, you know, it was a small group of us, and we were down in the basement of the Mushai The Moshai Man- Mansion was built by, uh, I believe his name was John, first name, uh, England, who was one of the governors of Texas. He was an attorney, and he lived, like, within a couple blocks of the courthouse. So he actually had people, if they, they, the, the, um, see, the Hispanics, African Americans, if they were, had to go to court for something, they would usually hold, he had a basement, which is unusual in Texas. They would hold him down there. He actually had a, a holding cell down there in a tunnel from his house to the courthouse because if they were to walk them to the courthouse for trial, they would get lynched. So, there, you know, there were things that went on down through the tunnels through the years, too. But um, Mosheim is a man who bought the house from England. Uh, when he wasn't reelected, he sold the house. But we were down in the basement uh, the night of the conference doing an a investigation at the house. And there was one of, one of the guys that were down there, and I was, you know, standing by him. Uh, I watched. And instead of a scratch, I watched. We all watched about the size of a quarter or, or half dollar in a round circle, big red welt appeared on his arm that hurt. It just, you know, I mean, we watched it as it appeared, which was, you know, we weren't really getting anything bad down there, but we were getting activity. Uh, we had a dog with us at the time, too, and the Moshe was supposed to have liked animals, so we would ask him if, you know, as far as the activity was going on, you know, you, you know, you can go pet the dog, you can go over by the dog, and every time we would do that, the dog would start growling. And only at, during that time, uh, it was a little two-pound dog, uh, <laughs> little teeny tiny thing, but that was the only time he would growl, as if, you know, was when when he was told that he could go. Uh, over to the dog and, you know, make friends with the dog. And then we were next door. We left there and went into a place that had been a hotel and some deaths that occurred there, including a murder. But we were in a room that would have been, uh, I think, was a restaurant at one time. 
and the person sitting next to me, we were sitting back on on a, a bench or something, and I'm sitting there, you know, arms crossed, just kind of relaxed, legs are out, you're leaning against the back, you're just kind of watching, listening, and observing. Then all of a sudden, he just hollers out of this real high-pitched sound, you know, asking me why the heck I pinched him. And I looked at him like, what? Wow. You know, and it was like, do you think I would really pinch you and hurt you? <laughs> and and uh, uh, we went outside and looked, and we watched as he had a scratch as appearing. I mean, they appeared as we were looking outside going down the length of his arm. And, uh, you know, we don't really know what that was um, because that was the only activity we got up there while we were in that place. Then I was at another place. Uh, they were, I was at the Magnolia Hotel, which is also in Seguin. Um, a friend of mine's sister bought the, bought the hotel, and she is restoring it. And we had stopped by, uh, my husband and I, my granddaughter. My granddaughter's a little bit sensitive. And we were headed on vacation somewhere, and we were driving through, so we just stopped to say hi. And we went through and just were looking, no investigation, just kind of, you know, showing us this room and this that room and how some of the, the pro- progress was going with the place. And the Magnolia Hotel, there was one guy they called a serial killer, and I cannot think of his name, but he was a doctor, and he, uh, he uh, I think he killed a 10-year-old with an axe, thinking it was his wife. He was trying to get rid of his wife. And people have said that when they go into the room he stayed in, they would get violently ill, get real sick, or pains in their head. So we're just looking through the hotel, and uh, we go in, into that room, and my granddaughter doesn't know anything about any of this stuff, and we're not necessarily talking about any of it. She gets starts feeling ill in that room and got a really bad headache in that room. And so we sent her outside, and she was fine when she went outside. So, yeah, there's been several times when I've been around people and things have happened. Yes. Um, Go ahead, for your sir. investigations, yeah, I was just, you know, I was thinking about um, who who is your mentor in this field or who do you most admire in this field? Um, probably my mentor started when I was, you know, in, in uh, well, before even high school. And I don't know if they were necessarily a mentor, but the, because I didn't have any mentors initially, but the people that I was learning from at the time were talking, you know, back in the 60s. Uh, there was, uh, you know, um, anything I could read about Edgar Casey, I did. Mm-hmm. I read absolutely everything about Edgar Casey. He fascinated me. Of course, Yuri Geller and Bending the Spoons. I can't tell you how many nights. Or days, I, hours I spent trying to bend a spoon with my mind. <laughs> Did you ever succeed? In those, you know, I never succeeded at it. Me either. I tried. I know somebody that, that Kim Trotman does it all the time, and she teaches classes at a college once in a while, and that's I you, never have been to spoon. Well, and, you know, and back then, of course, it was, you know, it was the, the Warrens. It was Ed and Lorraine Warren back then. Or the, oh, yeah. 
you know, back then. So that's what I grew up with, and I just continue to read as much as I can to this day to get to know as many people that, as I can and to learn from everybody. You know, it doesn't have to be anybody that's particularly well-known that can teach you a little tidbit of something sometimes. Mm-hmm. Do you wear anything, like, for protection when you go on in your investigations? I do. I do. Okay. I have, you know, I have something blessed that I take with me. Oh, that's good. Yeah, because I, I haven't, only one time, and I never made it actually all the way in, is that I wanted to go see Houdini's castle when it was still uh, up. They have since torn it down. But uh, we went up there, me and my uh, friend from high school, and we it was such a strange place. It was very overgrown, and the part of the roof had caved in. And uh, Houdini did live there, and I looked inside. There was like a massive, massive fireplace. It kind of reminded me of Citizen Kane where that, you know, that huge gray fireplace and the whole place looked really, you know, scary. And I thought I heard something and I ran screaming out of there. So I really (laughs) have not gone and looked for good. I did it. I was like a feeling like getting shot. That's how fast I was like, oh, my God, and just ran. And then what was happening is these uh, college dudes right behind us, and they ran too. They did the same. They didn't even make it up to the stairs. <laughs> we all screamed. Right. We out of there. It was hilarious. But I, I've right. never been able to let's say go into a, a a haunted place and investigate anything. You know, I actually am relieved when I move into a place and it's not haunted. So I've lived in many haunted places. Right. Right. I don't know. It's just it's. I guess because of. You know, all my experiences through my many years, it's just something that is normal and natural, and and it really doesn't scare me. Not that I'm not cautious, and not not that sometimes it's like, do I really want to go down that, you know, hallway? (laughs) Or or say, hey, you go first. (laughs) Because, you know, I have learned that things affect people differently, so... Something that I pick up on is, is not being comfortable to me may not bother the other another person. Yeah, and, and then you said something back in uh, the in our conversation about people that aren't dead haunting a place. Did I hear you correctly? Right, their energy. You don't have to be dead to leave your energy in a place. So what you're saying is there are creatures that are just innately in that dimensional realm and that's how they're born and live in, quote-unquote, the ghost world, correct? No, I'm saying that it could be you or me. You know, if there's something going on, something traumatic or something emotional or something, you can leave your imprint of your energy and your imprint in, in a location just as well as something that happened you know, when something that happened a long time ago, they're long dead, but they left the imprint from when they were alive. So, you know, it's the same type thing. You can do the same thing yourself. And that's what was happening with this, really with this, this one family, this couple that was suggested going to the marriage counseling. When they leave, there's probably going to be even more of a negative imprint in that, you know, in that house for the next runner that they generated and left behind. 
unless they clean it up. Well, Sean brings up, Sean brings up a good point because I was thinking that um, a few minutes ago was, um, are there, do you believe like um, some paranormal researchers, there are demons or whatever, um, do you believe that there are maybe just creatures that are not demons that are just, um, they're just, like we have animals that live that we can see, but quote unquote animals that live in this world, that's just where, where they live. Or how do you see that? Do you think that's possible? Sure, I think anything's possible. We're we're still finding, you know, tribes of people that have never been discovered, you know, in, in remote parts of this world. So there still can be animals out there that live in this world that we don't know about. Um, you know, I believe that, you know, we're not, you know, we're just one small part of this universe and many others. So, you know, we're not the, I don't think we're the only intelligent beings out in the universe or universes, there could be, you know, others. So could there be something from somewhere other than Earth here coming on? You know, I think that's very possible. If you get into the, you know, ancient mysteries, I mean, and you really get into that, there, you know, where they're, you know, who were the people there before all of us? You know, you know where do they learn... You know, some of them learn some of the technologies that they have. So I'm just open to anything, to creatures, to interdimensional. I mean, wormholes, there's so many possibilities that have yet to be proven. And if you go into the texts of so many other religions, the ancient texts, you know, they talk about jinn. You know, and we think of jinn as I dream of genie, you know, or Aladdin's lamp, you know, something like that, a genie. But if you look into so many other religions, you're going to find that a jinn is a creature that doesn't particularly care for humans. And, you know, and this goes back thousands of years. So, you know, who am I to say that that's not true? You know, yeah, there's just so many possibilities. Sure. Yeah, so I have a question in, in chat, and it's uh, by Tiffany. Um, she says she wants to tell you about how she had passed away in her last home, and uh, she actually came back. She had uh, some illness, and she passed away. And she came back, but uh, her image was actually inside the bathroom door. When she returned to her body, she turned around and saw it, and she wants to know what would you call that? A near-death experience? Yeah. It's what you're talking about, right? Yes, Sam. Yeah, yeah, that a lot of people have had where they died and they, you know, go out of their body and they can see everything. And, and I mean, that's a near-death experience. Mm. You know, I believe that really, you know, happens. I think so. Yeah, yeah. I, I just am trying to get the, the concept of the, what you're saying about that you can haunt a place and, it reminded me of uh, I went to uh, to pay my respects to a friend, and uh, when I went into her house, I felt like I was walking into a steam bath. There was so many, so much sadness and tears there in that house, and uh, it was like walking around in a fog. But really, it was like tears. And so I paid my respects, and it was her father and everything else. And then shortly after that. 
ironically, her her younger brother died, and so there was even more tears. You know, I could actually feel that the sadness was building up to almost a condensation in this house. It felt very strange because it was hot like a sauna and steamy, and then I felt like this is like really raw tears, and there was more and more sadness. So bad. Right, and that's what I'm. You know, that's what I'm talking about. Not that we we go we're living in haunt somewhere. We're just leaving an imprint of of energy or something there, you know. And it was in fact, I went and uh, with a, the last uh, job I had after I retired from law enforcement, I was still working, but with a state agency on the civil side. And I went into a house that uh, a child had died of SIDS. And uh, to interview the parents and check on the other children, and because uh, we hadn't been ruled SIDS at the, that time, we just said it was a child death, and you know, so I'm I prepared for all this emotion from the the child that died unexpectedly, and there were probably fifty to seventy five people in this small house, and it was the oddest thing because. The whole time I was there, and I was there several hours, I felt nothing. It was like a dead zone. I mean, there just was no emotion at all in this house. With all these people in there, there were no emotions. And everybody was sitting there, and nobody was, you know, talking, or they were just all sitting there almost like in a trance. And it was just, it was the oddest thing to me. So I talked to a friend of mine, and... And who who was her take on it was that um, they weren't feeling the emotions. It hadn't really sunk in for any of them that the child was gone. They haven't hadn't. It's like they were waiting and holding back to begin their grieving process once we left. And then nobody was grieving while we were there. And that was just the oddest thing to have no no emotion in the place. Yeah. Uh, it's almost like there was a vacuum or cold like the walls. Yeah. Yeah. That's what I did my I've mind. never, yeah, never experienced that before. That was very odd. Why do um, ghosts, why do ghosts, um, I mean, before I ask the question, it seems to me like when we think of what is a human, we think of, ourselves the way we are now, right? How we are talking, we have, you know, all things being equal, two hands, a head and two legs and all that stuff. Um, going by that, what is a human, then are ghosts even, we kind of humanize them, but by that definition, can one say that ghosts aren't even human? And but at the same time, if they're not, why do they take on the characteristics of their past life? I mean, they don't need to have a hat or clothes or anything, and yet they right. they, appear, they can appear like that to us. Why do they appear like that to us sometimes? Well, Given I if they're not really human anymore in the sense that we are. Right. Well, that I cannot answer. Um, if you know, I don't think anybody can answer that question because nobody really knows that. You think you have conversations sometimes, and and I think you know if it we're all energy, we're all made up of energy, and energy does not die. Energy just goes on once our our body is gone, once the shell is gone, we're still alive. 
and will continue to be alive as energy. And until, I think until we die, we won't really have the answer to that question. You know, I tell my friends, you know, be careful, I'm going to come back and haunt you. And knowing me, I would have fun going and turning their lights off and on and TV <laughs> off and on, you know, tripping them. You know, <laughs> You're going to be the trickster then, huh? <laughs> yeah, that would be me, <laughs> you know, well, to do, do that. Do uh, you want to answer a question uh, from somebody who just called in? Sure. Okay, hold on. Let me get her. Hey, Stephanie, you're you're live with the paranormal and the sacred. Stephanie. Steph. Steph Stephanie's gone missing. Oh, Tiffany. Oh. Stephanie, we hear you. Just start talking. You're live with the paranormal and the sacred. You want to tell us part of your story? Okay, call back. Call back, Tiffany. Here you are. Let me see. Okay, Tiffany, you're live with the paranormal and sacred. Hey, Shore, can you hear me now? Can you hear me? Yeah, I can hear you. Welcome aboard. Hey, how you uh, we're doing? very good. We're very interested in um in uh, your question and uh you share your experience with our guest tonight. I know. Hi, Martha. Hello, Hi, how are you? I'm your neighbor in Louisiana, a little Cajun woman. <laughs> okay. So, um, I'm really impressed in all your work. It's like something I would love to do is work with the police and stuff, you know. Um, I'm, I have, like, a lot of psychic abilities, too, throughout my life, uh, sort of similar to to Shore, you know. Um, but right. uh, I was on dialysis. It was back in 2005. <clears throat> and after dialysis, I went in the bathroom and... I had a heart attack, and I didn't believe in out of spirit, spirit body, you know what I mean? So when I came right. out of my chest, I, I saw my lung take its last last breath, and I stood on the side of my body and watched it laying there. Then I could hear my kids through the wall playing in the room. So I, I was like, what's going on? And all of a sudden, the lights went out, and then I was in this dark, dark place. So I reached around. I thought the light went out. So I started reaching around, and, and I couldn't find the sink and the wall, which is right there. It was a small bathroom. And then I just got on my knees, and I said, God, where am I? And I heard the voice say, you are a spirit. Then I started getting all the the scriptures in the Bible about being a spirit. And so I just noticed, oh, no, I died, my children. So that's the first thing. I was so desperate, and I remember begging God to let me come back. And I remember like a football player, I was hitting the wall with my shoulders to come back like this wall was in front of me. And then God let me come back in my body. And when I got up, I looked at the door and my face was imprinted in the door of my bathroom. Okay. So every time, every time I go in my bathroom, I see my face and it would always remind me of God let me come back. That's and that's pretty- when my... Yeah, that's when my uh, doctor put the pacemaker in. Okay. Do you ever have an experience like that? Yes. That is pretty wild. I mean, you know, there's people talk about their near-death experiences. You know, there's a lot of people that talk about them more than ever. But I don't think I've ever heard of anybody having, you know, your type, you know, but, you know, but that doesn't mean nobody else has. I just haven't. That's fascinating. 
The only one I heard of was on TV when they were doing, like, ghost stories, and this little girl in college, she got burnt, and she uh-huh. <laughs> her image would always appear on the door. And um, and then so every time they changed the door, it'd come back. But, you know, that, that you know, could go along with that, that imprint from that emotion, too, something like that, you know, I don't know. I That's very interesting. Yeah. Well, it's, it's, it well, is fascinating. You so much. And you're welcome. I want to tell Tiff, Tiff, uh, I had a life after death experience that um, I was almost to God because I could feel the love and the light and that's where I was going. But I came back because I also thought about my children. That's what I told God. Yeah. What about my kids? So I ended up back. Then once I got back, I was wondering, what did I do after? <laughs> I, was, I was out of here. I was gone, but now I decided to come back. So now yeah, I you had your chance, though. What are you doing? Man, I had my chance. Yeah, I don't with, Deal with kids growing up and teenage years and all of that good stuff. Oh, yeah, I would have missed all that. And then uh, now I have three grandchildren and a great-grandson on top of it, so... You know, uh, so I'm glad I'm back. I, so, you know, things are different now. But uh, yeah, well, you, you never, but the love of a child, though, you would do whatever. Give your life, come oh, back yeah. from the dead or whatever. Right. Right. Hey. Thank What's you, that? Tiffany. Thank you. Yeah, can I? Did you have any more comments? Welcome. Yeah, I just wanted to say one more thing is that, uh, the Bible calls it being God throwing you into the outer darkness. So there's many scriptures on that, and that's where I was. I couldn't even see my hand before my face, nothing, but we're in spirit form anyway. But I'm going to tell you, many times I died after that, and I pray to God, please don't put me back in that dark place. And every time I have seen the kingdom of God, the ghost that's city. That's good. So that's good. Right. You, you know, probably my closest I had, and it was not a near-death experience, but my closest thing to that was I had a wreck a couple of years ago where I I ended up um, driving into the back end of a car, and there was nothing I and I there was nothing I could do about it. It was going to happen. I just I couldn't do anything, and I just you know. I let it happen. Everything slowed down. I just I felt safe. I knew nothing would in that time. I knew that I was not going to be hurt. You know everything would be okay. And it's like just what you say, like putting your trust in the Lord or something. I just knew it was going to be fine. But it was you know and it was fast. But it seemed to just go so slow. And uh, you know everything was fine. You know, I got a nice new car out of it, too, even though that one was only two years old. <laughs> oh, gosh. I'm just glad you're still here and all of us. Uh, it's uh, been even, uh, Adrian, you had a, a something that happened to you, uh, almost happened. Oh, I mean my out-of-body experience, yeah. yeah. Um, I found it interesting that Tiffany talked about how she came out of her chest. That's, I think it. I wonder if that's a clue or how we come out, because that's how I came out at an autobot experience. I saw a bright light coming out of my chest, and I knew intuitively 
what that meant. And then um, I went out of my body, and the next thing I know, in this, this tunnel, and then I decided to go. I said, I want to go see what my, what my parents are doing. So I, <laughs> I was watching my parent, grandparents' home at that time, and so I was at my. Then I ended up in my parents, and I was cruising around in the dining room, and I could hear them in the family room watching TV. And then, but then I felt. Unsafe, as if, you know, when you're riding a bicycle for the first time and you feel very wobbly and unsafe, and that's how it felt. And so I said, okay, I need to go back before I hurt myself, as it were. And then I went through the swirly tunnel, and then I ended up back, and then I opened my eyes. But I intuitively knew what, what that was, and then I had another one where I was going out of my body, and then I was pushed back. I wanted to, you know, explore the nature, figure out the the... The secrets of the universe, I remember that was my intent, find, you know, find out the truth about aliens and all of that sort of thing. And uh, a, right. force, a force pushed me back, and I, as it was, I was barely maybe a few feet out of my body. As, if, as it was pushing me back, I heard a voice say, not yet. It wasn't angry, but just definite, not yet. Yeah, you can't, you can't find out yet. Right? <laughs> Apparently. <laughs> I found it compelling in the sense that, like, she she. Saw her, you know, some, you know, she was coming out of her chest. Right. I think that's an interesting. Is that right. that seems to be like an exit way, or that chest area must be a special part of us in there, or something. Yeah, I had a I had a friend, and actually, she was kind of a mentor as far as um, the uh, uh, empath stuff went. And she's uh, been been gone for a few years now. And but Natalie used to. Um, when she was younger, uh, by the time that I she started working or helping me, she was older and uh, on a lot of medication, so she didn't see or anything like she used to. But um, she used to have out-of-body experiences all the time, and she used to tell me about, about some of her trips. You know, she would just do it whenever she wanted to, pretty much. And uh, she was a fascinating person to, to know. And I had so another. Okay. Go ahead. No, I interrupted you. Um, well, I had uh, something else that happened. Is that uh, I was uh, I, I think I said this before, but it was so odd. I've never really uh, got an answer for it. And I want to thank Tessie so much for being courageous and calling in like that because she is quite an unusual person. And uh, anyway, uh, thanks, Tessie. Um, I actually woke up in the middle of the day and I was sleeping on my back, which I don't do usually, or, you know. But anyway, um, I opened my eyes and uh, I had to wait for a minute because uh, I wasn't me yet. And I know that's very strange to say, but I was I was there, a blank slate, you know, just laying there waiting, and then uh, trying to not remember who I was. I just was didn't turn into who I was yet. So I was waiting and went, oh, yeah, you know, your name is Charlene. Oh, yeah, you're married. Oh, oh yeah, and the kids about And then I turned back into me. So what is that? I have I no idea. I was. It was like I hadn't turned back into me yet. I'm like, what am I doing here? Right. You know, if I, I have to, am I, it made me think about stuff. Like, am I just temporary playing a role right now? you know, that I had to wait to turn back into myself. There was no fear connected with it at all, but I had no idea where I'd been either. Right. I don't know. 
I don't know because there's a lot of people that have that, that those same thoughts, but but not in the same way. I you know. know why am I here? Yeah. Yeah. Have I done what I was, you know, have I done what I was sent here to do or is it still to come or the whole what thing? But yours was just a lot different. Yeah. And I think that there is uh, so many ways that the spirit expresses itself that we just can't contain it. You know, I just uh, do a Bible study every Sunday morning and I just read, you know, that uh, there's so many, many, many things that were omitted from the Bible because they couldn't fit it all in because it would take up the whole world. Right. And that's why they things out. Not intentionally. It's just they couldn't put it all in. And I was thinking, I wonder what all that stuff was. You know, we may be expressions of all these different experiences, you know, and uh, people that haven't heard it before probably have a strong reaction to it, but um, it was a very odd feeling, only in retrospect. At the time, you know, it didn't feel odd to me. I had to just right. wait a little bit. <laughs> right. Right. Too strange. Yeah. Now, you, you have something coming up. Uh, you have some events and uh, uh, trainings that you do and things like that. Can you tell us about um, what do you have coming up in the future? Well, right now, I think the only thing I have set on my plate is in October, um, and that's in Tyler, Texas. It's the uh, Tyler Comic Con, and uh, that one has to do with, um, uh, I think, me and then there's several other um, authors that are going to be at the Comic-Con to judge some uh, short story contests. But there's going to be all sorts of people at that event, uh, such as one of the Doctor Who, um, a bunch of the, I'm trying to think of who all is going to be there uh, for the Comic-Con. And I'm trying to remember the date. I know it's in October. It's okay, it's um, October 25th. And 25th. Yeah, the 25th. It, it starts at 10 a.m. and it's Tyler Rose City Comic Con. And the address is 5701 South Broadway Avenue, Tyler, Texas. And also you're you're going to be signing your book there, so Paranormal right. Profiling. And, right, uh, I'll sign, yeah. That was the one that people wanted to want to see one of the Doctor Who's, if they want to see people from Lost Girls, uh, people from uh, uh, the, a whole bunch of other shows, they're going to be there. Um, got one from, uh, that was on the, in, in 300, and the Immortals, and Riddick, he's on Helix right now, and you've got Jennifer Spence is going to be there. She's been on the Stargates and the Vinci Inquest, and uh, she's on Continuing right now, was on Supernatural. Uh, just a whole bunch of, I mean, there's a whole host of people like that. And I will be signing my book and uh, during that event. And I, there may be something in September, and I can't think of it right now. 
I try to put the events up on my author page with Amazon. Yes. When, yes. when I uh, that's where that's where it is, and uh, you can get her book on Amazon.com and just uh, Google her name and put your name her name in there. And uh, Martha Hazard Decker. The Paranormal Profiling, or you can put that in there. It's on Amazon, it's on Barnes & Noble, and several other things. It's available on Kindle and Nook, all sorts of different ways. Or they can always contact me if they want to sign a copy. Pardon? Yes, and how can they contact you? They can contact me through Facebook. Um, they can contact me through, uh, Facebook's probably the easiest. They can go to MarthaDecker.com and contact me that way. I don't have a lot of fancy stuff set up on that page yet, uh, but it's there. Uh, and I believe you can contact me that way. Facebook's probably the easiest as Martha Hazard Decker or on the author page or, or even through our uh, paranormal page. Uh, for East Texas Paranormal, and the website is etxhaunted.com. Okay, I want to thank you, Martha, very much for being our guest tonight. And uh, I know everybody will look forward to meeting you over at the Comic-Con, and you're welcome aboard any time, and we appreciate your expertise and your stories. And I want to thank you so much for being on tonight. Well, thank you for having me. I enjoyed it. Very it was a pleasure to meet you. Okay, good night, Martha. Take care. Okay, good, okay, good night. Thank you. Good night. Right. Take care. Okay, bye-bye. Bye. Now, now, uh, Agent, what do you think? I think that, uh, she, what a fascinating woman. I, I heard that she was a diver for uh, the police, too, and uh, oh, just, just so interested. Absolutely fascinating. I, I, Go ahead and make your announcements, because I think your show's about to end. So say what you need to say before right. it gets cut. Okay, so... We do have a few things coming up. You know, MUFON's having uh, their uh, gathering on, uh, let me get to my spot, MUFON Los Angeles is having Preston Dennett, who's going to be talking about the undersea base, water base for the USO, uh, unidentified submerged objects, I guess, and based off the California coast. Now, a lot of people are seeing this, and I have seen uh, something going over there out to the ocean, but I can't be sure anyway. It's at the Colony Theater, 555 North 3rd Street, and that's in Berkeley. And the, the doors open 630. It's only 15 bucks to get in. So move on L.A. And then, uh, of course, Grant Cameron's coming September the 20th to Ciro uh, International. And uh, that's going to be great. And that's at uh, September 20th, Grant Cameron himself. They send out a questionnaire. And it's in very interesting. So he's going to be talking about 64 reasons the government is covering up the ET presence. At the Veterans Memorial Complex, 4117 Overland Avenue, Culver City, California, 90230. Dang. <laughs> oh, you did it. <laughs> com, 15 bucks at the door. So now we've got it done. So pretty soon they'll cut off the uh, the listening, the sound, everything. So now we're going to go to recording. God bless you. Keep you. Love you guys. Thank you, everybody, for tuning in. And uh, we're going to hang on for a few minutes, and we're going to be uh, – actually uh, making our last commentary before uh, we hang up for the night. And so, yeah, everything, uh, we, everything we say will, will be on the podcast. 
for those who are I'm curious. So even if you get cut off. But those who are listening through the phone, they can still listen in, correct, Char? Yes. Am I correct? People that are on the phone, you can still listen. People in chat can still be chatting. It will be just cutting off in about 12 seconds. So anyway, okay. 10 seconds that is. I don't know if you can hear that. So anyway, Adrian. Yes. I thought the show was, a, she's a wonderful guest, wonderful person. Um, I like the fact to bring in people who have um, interviewing skills as far as talking to witnesses. I think that's that's sorely needed. I think in um, not just paranormal, but even UFO stuff, I think. I, in any sort of, if we use paranormal in a various broad sense, that, could, that, in, that can include UFO stuff. Um, those kind of skill sets, I think, are useful. I think it's great that she's... And other people are doing it. It's great to hear that also um, law enforcement kind of, you know, type people are interested in that because one would think, oh, that they wouldn't be. So it's nice to hear that people that one would assume are not that are. Perhaps more and more people are becoming slowly open to these sorts of things. What do you think? Yes, and I was just thinking about, you know, there's so many teams out there uh, getting together. Uh, It's like um, I I feel... like a a certain feeling about it that I do remember uh, being a kid and uh, the uh, spiritualist movement was a really big thing. And I feel like the same thing is like happening again, except with the technology, it's it's making it uh, so interesting how things have changed, the EVPs, the the different lighting and... uh, you know, the cameras and stuff like that. We were actually getting pictures and recordings of things that were we couldn't get before. You know, they were making all kinds of contraption, like mirror rooms and stuff like that. And the oracle goes back, you know, thousands of years of looking into an oracle and where one person was the oracle talking about all these prophecies and stuff. So I guess this has been going on since the beginning of time. But uh, I just... Uh, I, I have not voluntarily gone into a ghost, you know, haunted house. I've lived in several, you know. That's why you don't need to live in several. Me I don't too. need I've, to go. Yeah, I've lived in a haunted house too most of my life, so it um, wouldn't be anything um, new with that. doesn't mean it's not exciting, but, yeah, doing a, an actual investigation. But you bring up a good point. I mean, um, in the 19th century, you know, spiritualism was huge. I think it was the 19th century, if memory serves. And then um, – and it's sort of well, like there was a lot of charlatans too. Oh yeah, yeah. yeah. Now, you, now you got um, technology um, accompanying the um, that, that exploring the the phenomena. I think the philosopher Hume even complained about that. The philosopher a long time ago that somebody inquired him about ghosts or something. If memory serves, and I think he stated, you know, there needs to be more rationally um, approach more methodical and stuff and we're seeing more sorts of things not you know viewing a room in different light spectra um, using various auditory technologies and it's really it's really fun to see how all that is being utilized um, to to validate and and explore and it's going to get I think it's going to get even better and better I mean I remember when I was watching, you, I'm sure you probably remember, like, remember when Ghost Hunters started to be on TV, like, I don't know, 14 years ago or whatever it was, uh, or maybe 10 years ago, I don't know. 
um, in the early 2000s, and you watched even how they progressed, and then how high tech they are now. And I think a lot of the groups become were like that too. They just had like you know regular t- cassette tapes and cameras or whatever, and then now it's the digital cameras and computers. And it was just interesting to to see how that show progressed. And I'm I'm assuming all the other paranormal groups probably progressed relatively at the same time as the technology became so um, micro, so portable. You know, I think that helps a lot, too. A lot of our technology is so portable now. Where, yeah. Um, a long time ago, everything was just big, you know, and now um, people are having their own FLIR cameras. And, um, I mean, it's just incredible how, how how mobile we are, and I think that, that helps in that. Um, and, and it's, it's really interesting. And but we do need to get better. That's what I like. I really intrigued by um, Decker and why I really wanted to be on this show is just to be part of listening to her describe how important it is that um, the interviewing process of how to interview a witness and being able to ascertain the basic facts and if this person is a liar or not a liar or or maybe getting the proper information out because maybe they're, they're not answering properly. I mean, all, all sorts of things. And so the interviewing technique, I think, um, can be improved. And so I like the fact that she's contributing to that. I know. That's why I found her so intriguing just because of that. Using uh, And the questions that she was talking about, when she was talking about the body language, that uh, how a right-handed person will look up to their left and things like that. She's really uh, watching. Uh, well, she's con- watching those are conscious cues. Yeah. We, some people are good at intuitively con- being able to tell if somebody's, you know, BSing or, or whatever. And then, um, but to couple it with actually conscious knowledge, okay, i got to pay attention to this person, you know. And, um, yeah, those are really fascinating cues. Yeah, she didn't want, I don't think she wanted to give all of her secrets no. away. Um, but I think I felt like those those, those definitely need those definitely need um, to be in the the paranormal. I think it's great um, that they're like. And I like the culture of the paranormal where it, uh, everything is very volunteer based. You know, um, they go out and they provide a free service just because it's so important to get um, to the truth. And I like the fact that she's into sharing the craft of how they do it. Um, because I would imagine some of it can be competitive and everybody's trying to outdo each other, but you got to look at the bigger picture. I like her viewpoint. You look at the bigger picture, you know, we're all trying to get to the same truth here. That's, at least that's what she tacitly was suggesting. We get trying to find the truth is better if we help each other, you know, and so I like that approach. Yeah, I like it too. It's a, it's a practical approach, and if I ever – I wouldn't. I wouldn't mind interviewing people, like keeping it separate, not going to the ghost house, but meeting them at my office and interviewing them before they went in. I wouldn't mind doing that kind of role. Yeah, well, you yeah, know, yeah. then I can give my impression of what's going on and do the technique like that. Right. I wouldn't mind. That. I mean, um, some. I mean, some of the skill sets that you've developed intuitively because of your work of how you know somebody just trying to manipulate yeah. you. I, mean, I, for, I wanted to ask a question because I was curious if uh, she, she's one of those guests you could have easily for three hours. Um, I know, I know, and I had a feeling she could have gone for a whole hour. Are there people that try to pull one over on her? Because there have been, I, I know, in, in, the, in the past and other cases where, you know, 
they cut themselves, but they cut it themselves in such a way, and then so they don't they won't bleed later or whatever. So then they come like, look, I've been cut, you know, or scratched by by a ghost, and they really haven't. Has she come up with those sort of individuals who try to really, really pull one over on her? And um, I'm assuming well, she probably has. I think that's getting kind of serious. I think once you're cutting yourself to prove something to somebody, you really lost your mind. You know what I mean? Like, what? Why are you doing the whole thing? Why are you? Attention, you know, people like people why like. Why are you injuring yourself for and lying when the truth is more interesting to me? Well, right. You're speaking as a you know a balanced human being, but there are people who uh-huh. don't do this stuff for the money, but just for attention or or I mean, there's a there's a whole myriad of, of reasons why. I've, I mean, I got my own theories on on certain people, but as far as ghosts, um, people, I think some people, I think get off on seeing if they can fool other people. You know, I, I've I've met people like that, and it's just weird. Um, it doesn't help, you know. Um, but yeah, they'll they'll do stuff. It's 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 bizarre. Um, people it's are bizarre, bizarre, and you know, and just have to consider the world. I, I like how she's open-minded. So I was taught, yeah, she's very open-minded, but I was taught this. Let's say a person's like that. You have to treat them like they're ill. You know what I mean? Like, oh, you poor sick person, so you don't get so angry and wrapped up in it. And I think that's what I was taught. You just treat them like a sick person. And it helps remove you from the anger of it all. Because I'm telling you, I get mad. You know, oh, yeah, somebody's yeah. doing that because there's not the necessity of it. Like, just why bother lying? You're just making us have to go around. Okay, so if you tell the truth, you can have it in one sentence. This is the truth. Blah blah. One sentence. Right. You tell a lie, man. You, it works for. It can work for days. You're on the same stupid topic, running around in a circle, when you lied initially. Like why? Right. Anyway. Well, um, like, some of those, those people that are quote unquote doing it, that doesn't mean they're not cognitively. Astute and manipulative, they can be highly manipulative people, and so that's why yeah. you have to. Your um, one has to keep one's um, intellect in check and not get too angry, um, and keep focus because use angry as a motivator, but maybe you know focus because while you're getting angry, they're busy manipulating. Yeah, you know that's I mean? true. Because when you lost it, then you really lost the. the yeah, I know. I, I I hear you. You know, when someone's doing that, yeah. you just you want to really wring their neck, but um, I've learned to keep focused and just instead of getting angry at them, I learn how to combat them, as it were, intellectually, you know, and let them know, like, I, I know what you're doing. <laughs> you're not, you're not fooling yeah, right. well, You're not fooling anybody. Actually, you're you're, you're not fooling me. Let's say that you know. happens to me with somebody that I'm working with. You know, I'll just go to the punch and I'll tell them, just don't lie because I can't help you. If you're lying, how can I help them? You know, then they then they realize if I lie, I can't get help. You know what yeah. I mean? So, and it would be from anything from getting a job to whatever, you know, any kind of counseling and whatever it is. If I if people are lying, you actually can't get the help you need because. But believe me, uh, if you're in prison and under that kind of scrutiny, believe you can't live honestly. No, you can't. Yeah. Um, Think yourself all the prisoners. Right. Um, 
Well, I mean, tell tell me how you dealt with like when you when you caught people because I mean, I'm sure Martha well, I has. Told you. Yeah, I, no, I, she has. You and her are very similar well, in that sense. I, both... I bring it out. This is what I do. I bring it out into the clear, clear it out. You got to suffer a little bit, and then it's over. As far as I'm concerned, it's over. Yeah. Because you and her, it's interesting in the sense you guys have a similar background and that you work with um, criminals. Yeah, it's really, it's really interesting that what she's doing, and uh, I just know that uh, I am not going to run off and do investigate some. Uh, after this, you know, this uh, interviewing her, I realized I'm not going to do that. I could actually interview people. I would like to do that if they're going on a hunt or whatever, but I can't see myself doing it because I'm too afraid. Yeah. You know, I don't want to go into a haunted house. And like I said, I have uh, lived in them, and it was all subtle, and then it gets louder, and then other things happen. Weird stuff happens, you know. So, and my kids, Was the haunted uh, stuff, you think, part of it, um, like um, poltergeist stuff, the emotions that everybody's feeling, or, or was it yeah, also did it all ghosts and stuff like that? Well, one house I lived in, uh, a guy overdosed there, and then another house I lived in, somebody dropped off a ghost there, and I don't appreciate that because I do drive by that house once in a while, and I just think that's that house where that guy dropped the ghost off, and uh, because he kicked the ghost out of his house, and the ghost said, well, I have to go somewhere, so he decided to bring it to my house. It was pretty stupid, but it did happen, you know, because I... I uh, I don't know. I don't want to tell that story. It's about one of my sisters, but right, she right. experienced something terrible, you know. So uh, that happened in the past, but with another sister. But I think uh, if, uh, you know, some certain people, you know, I think substance abuse and, and ghosts and spirits and all that sometimes play a role, too, because um, people... They can try to deceive us, too. I mean, the, exactly. Uh, the you know they'll they'll say there's something or whatever, and I wonder how she deals with um, if her interview. Oh, that would have been a great question. Do her interviewing skills oh, yeah. help her deceptive ghosts or spirits? Yeah, yeah, because I believe that's absolutely true. You know, I I think there's so many. I don't know. There's a whole realm of things going on, isn't there? Just uh, it's, I don't know. It's just very strange to me, and it's, it scares me. And uh, but I I do need to talk about it and uh, recognize what it is and it's just so curious and I think that uh, more will be revealed I think we'll find out more and more what's going on yeah because I mean it, it it hurts I think the paranormal field or any field when one has these I mean it's already such a difficult field the paranormal field and then having people right. stage things or like charlatans and uh, charlatans like and things, and I think in any mm-hmm. field, and some are really good at it. You know, that's the really um, scary thing about it, and we need to keep our, our wits about it and a little bit of common sense and intuitive insight. And um, sometimes, you know, I like oh, to use yeah. the analogy of, of an impression, impressionistic pa- painting. When you stand too close to something, because people get sometimes, you know, too close to the subject and they know the person or whatever, and it's like a like an impressionistic painting. You're 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 too close to the painting. You see too much of the detail, but you don't see the bigger picture. Impressionistic painting. When you step back, 
then you see what's actually going on and you can see the truth. So sometimes taking a step back is very healthy. And that's why I try to balance of going back and forth of getting close, but then stepping back like an impressionistic painting, you can see it more coherently when you actually see it farther away, you get close, it becomes blurry. So that's my analogy of the truth. Sometimes when you get too close, you actually don't don't see the truth because you're just right. too close. You know, right, because it's, it's a big picture going on, and there's, you know, so right. many. Yeah. And sometimes people we deal with, we become close to them, whatever, and those same people could be the ones that are, could be manipulating us. You right. Know? And, but you don't, one doesn't see it because one's too close, as it were. But taking a step back... You know, looking the whole picture and talking to other people, it's like, wait a second, what's going on here? So I think her skill set into the paranormal, um, I think it's great that that she, um, she's doing it. And, I'm, and I love the fact that, like I said, that she's she's not into, you know, okay, we're going to keep our methodology secret. We're going um, to, we need we need to share and stuff. So she's just a great gal. I, I, I think she's great. I like her a lot, you know, and... Uh... It's great getting to know her and uh, what she's doing. It's really amazing. And, How did you find uh, out about I, her? Um, I actually can't recall. I think I came across her book. I was on Amazon. Oh, okay. And uh, that's, I think that's how I did it. I went on Amazon, and uh, I saw that book. I put Paranormal in. I was looking at books. And then it's I saw that's exactly what happened. I saw the title. I went, Paranormal yeah. Profiling. And then I looked I just, her up, and then I found her on Facebook. That's how it happened. Okay, yeah, it's it's a, it's I love the cover of the of uh, the the book. Paranormal, I love the, it. Yeah, it's, it's just great. Um, so I, I hope it works out for her, and she keeps on doing it. That she and she teaches her, her craft of profiling because I I think that's that's got to be an important aspect, not just investigating the ghost, but investig, you know, getting testimonial evidence. I mean. Being able to sift through that, you need the one needs the skill set to to go through that. You know what I mean? And yeah. that's a very skill set. I mean, you can be a physicist or a biologist or a chemist or whatever. That doesn't teach you how to navigate around the human being and how to deal with human beings. And so we need people with those kind of skill sets. That's why I think whether it's a paranormal or UFOs, science isn't the only discipline to help. We need historians. We need psychologists. We need philosophers. We need all various sorts of rational systems to get the law because it's because we have all sorts of data and when you're talking about testimony someone who's a computer science or whatever they're not they're not taught how to interpret human data you know and um right. they don't necessarily think in those lines but a psychologist and philosophers are we think about the human condition and we think about the you know okay when this is coming in um we take all sorts of things in, in, into considerations, whereas they're, the other sciences, as extremely valuable as they are, it's this very sort of a, a mathematical sort of way of looking at it. When you're dealing with a, um, data coming from a human being, it's, it's sort of a, a, I guess, lack for better if I'm going to use a, a physicist word, a, a quantum effect of sorts, you know, because pe- people are kind of like a, operate sort of like a quantum sort of thing, you know, you never know what's going to happen when you put two people together. You're talking about possibilities, not certainties, but you can make some reasonable choices, too. And so, you know what I mean? That's an excellent way to put it, because, but that's the beauty of it, isn't it? Like, endless uh, possibilities, end, endless uh, 
uh, well, yeah, it's beautiful. It's beautiful in a sense, but it's also frustrating. <laughs> yeah, it <is. laughs> but it, but but it's a process. I I see. Uh, no, I I take your point. Um, yeah. Yeah. Trying to um, get, but uh, but not to dismiss it because some people get so frustrated. You know, say, well, that's just a testimony. Who cares? You know, let's just that's not real data. That's the lowest form of data. Yeah, but it's still data. And second of all, there's different kinds of testimony. You know what I mean? You you cannot dismiss that not all testimony testimonies are equal. You know, so it it does depend who the source is. It does depend. It doesn't matter. You know, well, my some some say you know, um, well, my cognition is just as good as that other person's cognition. So there's no difference between my testimony and that other person's testimony. And I would say no, there is. I like to use my example myself as an example. Okay, I like classical music. And so I'm familiar with the classic era, Baroque era, and Romantic era. And so if I hear it, not only will I be able to tell, I'll be able to tell you what style of music it is, I'll be able to tell you the instrumenta- instruments involved, maybe even the composer, <laughs> the piece. Someone who's not well-versed in that will say, well, yeah, I hear a bunch of music, but I have no idea what I'm listening to. I can't even tell you yeah. the name of the instruments, you know. And so, um, so you have my testimony, the other person's testimony. So, yeah, that person might have the equal cognitive abilities, but they don't have the the equivalent cognitive experience, mm-hmm. and so um, and knowledge accompanying that. So all testimonies are not equal, and I think some of the skeptics or so-called debunkers um, oversimplify um, what a, the value of a, a testimony, um, and that's a yeah. starting point. Because it's not perfect doesn't mean, and just because it's quote unquote a low form of evidence doesn't mean it should be dismissed. Okay, it's the lowest form of evidence, so. That, that's, that's really, still, isn't that used in the courts, the testimonies and the witnesses well, and the, you know, well, that's the... They'll say, well, the counter-argument to that is uh, they'll say, you know, like DeGrasse Tyson will say, well, we're not dealing with the court of law, we're dealing with the court of science. But even so, so even the court of science, that's how it starts. You start with a hypothesis. There's some compelling evidence. Sure, maybe it's not definitive, but it should be compelling enough for you to go to say, you know what, let's investigate this further and not be so dismissive, you know? And so, um, in, in either case, whether it's the court of law or the court of silence, testimony can be valuable, especially given the kinds of testimony, because not all testimonies are equal. The court of law recognizes there are different kinds of testimonies. Too bad the court of science doesn't recognize it, and they should recognize it, because it is evidence. <laughs> you know, if, if they have a colleague, evidence. you have an astronaut, you know, <laughs> telling you, I saw a UFO, are you just merely going to dismiss that? You know what I mean? Come on. And you got Especially other astronauts or other scientists. Somebody was there walking on the moon now. Come on. Right. You can't just that's say, well, that's his testimony. Sure, that's testimony, but you're talking about a scientist who saw it. And you can conduct any, you know, psychological test. The person's not crazy. It might not be definitive proof, but it bears investigation, for Christ's sake. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And so um, the parent of these ghost stuff, too. I mean, I wish more uh, academia got into because it's a fascinating thing. I mean, some of them could be our dead relatives. I'm thinking it could be various things, like sorts of creatures that just reside in this different realm. Really, it be, it's so strange. It's so strange. It's strange you know, when, yeah. I was, when I was a kid, I used to see things, you know. Um, I would see it when we're outside during the day, and I would actually see sort of like what they film out in space, like long snake things and all that. But there's, they were smaller, and they were white, and it were literally, I used to be scared of breathing them in, 
You know what I mean? There were just so many of them. And they're not wow. the floaters in your eyes. These were, these were actually moving in different directions and, uh, you know, squiggling about. And I remember looking at everybody and knew nobody else was looking at them. You know, so eventually, you know, your mind has to block that. Right. Because you can't just keep watching all this crazy stuff going on there. You know, so eventually, you know, I didn't see that anymore. But I know it's there because once in a while there will be a weird picture of all these things that are moving or dusting or whatever, you know. And I'm not talking yeah. about orbs. They were actual, almost like they would be little, uh, if they were bugs, but they weren't shaped like bugs. They are more shaped like uh, moving particles or little ones or snakes or something. I don't know. I don't know what to say. Well, remember what? how rods used to be popular in the 90s and it kind of died yeah. out? Do you remember rods? Yeah. What they are? Yeah. yeah they were really popular when uh, UFO stuff was kicking in again. And, uh seems yeah. like I had another wave in the late 80s, early 90s, and then it kicked in again in the 90s with the rods and stuff. Um, uh, it's so odd that, you know, it's just so it's evidence of, of creatures that are, like, right in front of us. And we don't even, That's right. Yeah. And you yeah, can't I mean, see it because you can't actually tolerate looking at this much interference, you know, of so much stuff in our Well, there's no way we, well, brain can't handle seeing, I mean, to see everything all at once, that's just too much for our brain to process, so it's, it's been true. evolved to the point where it's just, pro, you see what you need to see, and then what you don't see, yeah. that you to see, you'll, you'll figure it out, and that's what we're doing right now, we're trying to, trying to figure yeah. it out, but yeah. these cameras, and, because our, our eyes can only see certain spectra, but cameras, like I saw in UFO hunters, they did a thing about, you know, how come certain UFOs, will show up on the camera, but they can't, we can't see them with the naked eye. One would think, well, the camera sees it. Why can't my eye see it? And they were explaining it that, uh, um, because, you know, they have a scientist um, that's part of the UFO team. His name slips at the mind. But, um, yeah. And uh, he, they took the camera in and stuff, and they were saying that the camera actually bleeds in over to the infrared sec, um, spectra a little bit. And that's probably why I can catch stuff we can't, which raises the question, you know, maybe you have some of these UFOs, they realize that. And so they're... they're um, wow, wouldn't that be so easy to... And so you could be looking oh at one God. right in front of you and not even see it. And so the same thing could be with ghosts. Maybe maybe some of them are in a certain spectra where we just can't... Because you notice, like, you know, ca- the camera will capture, capture or an EVP will capture a voice, but yet your ear yeah. can't... So I think the same thing applies perhaps with auditory technology where perhaps it can catch certain ranges that our ears can't, but then once we listen to the recording, it's like, oh, wow, there's a voice there. I totally believe that. I, I think that that's what I'm saying, that is more will be revealed that we're only seeing a part of the picture that's observable from our personal eyes. You know what I mean? Yeah. Some people can't even see all the colors even, you know, if you're colorblind or something like that. Or tone deaf, or whatever. Well, there's, you know, you'll be fascinated by another hole. Not only that, but um, when I took cognitive science, um, when I was taking a, a philosophy, uh, one of the courses was called cognitive science. That's an interdisciplinary term, by the way. You can be a psychologist, psychobiologist, uh, a linguistic, a philosopher. Um, there's various sorts of disciplines, and un- it's under the umbrella of cognitive science and cognitive science simply interested in how, how simply put how do we learn and so you have these various disciplines um, it's a cross-disciplinary sort of thing like ufology and so um, when we were taking cognitive science yeah we were looking at it from a self perspective we we're also studying 
other disciplines, how how they were looking at um, how we learn and um, and how we forget things because I forgot what I was going to say. Crap. Don't <laughs> 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 you hate that? You lead up to the point and you're like, what was I trying to say? Um, goodness gracious, that's and this is embarrassing. Um, good grief. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. So anyway, talking so. Um, so tell us about how to where where is your all your information at again? Give us your report. Because um, I know about, you haven't been feeling well. Uh, about uh, ufophilosopher dot com, and that's where you're working on various essays and things like that. It's very interesting. Yeah, I have ufophilosopher dot com. Anybody can contact me at Adrian at ufophilosopher dot com. I look at ufology from. Um, a philosophical perspective. I truly believe science is critical as it is and necessary. Ufology, other disciplines, we need them too, like Richard Dolan um, looks at ufology from a historical perspective, and that's valuable, um, invaluable. I mean, it's just extremely so. And um, I'm trying to bring in, I think I'm the only philosopher, um, accredited philosopher that's um, with a graduate degree looking, at least publicly, um, that's into ufology, so I hope I can contribute certain things. I realize I'll be rubbing people the wrong way, but that's not what I'm trying to do. I'm trying to get to the truth. I'm just being methodical, and so yeah. doesn't mean I'm always You're right. You're being open. I'm being open <laughs> well, and getting to another perspective because people have a lot of misconceptions. People think philosophy yeah. is esoteric. You just kind of come up with anything, do whatever you want. That's not how it works at all. Those are people who speak like that know nothing of philosophy. It's another rational system. And science yeah, evolved yeah. from philosophy. The, the, the scientific method evolved from philosophy. Logic evolved from philosophy. But scientific method, though, while evolved from it, still it became separate because they're not concerned about the ethics of things, the epistemology of things. Um, um, it's just a, a pure mechanics of, okay, we, we have a hypothesis, we put it, we have a t- take it in a lab, and then see what happens and whatever, but some things you can't take in a lab. And what makes you go, what makes you decide that certain data is important and, and not important? So you're talking about value, so that's why we, we all need to pool our resources and work together in finding out yeah. to get to the mystery of things. And so that's what I try to do in my own way, slowly, albeit slowly, but um, whatever I put up, I try to put it as, um, as high quality as I can. I'm doing my best. And so the the next, I'm working actually in a few S's at the same time. One that I'm slow finishing up, I'd say about, I'm about three quarters finished, is the nature between, the friendship between aliens and humans. And um, it was exploratory. I was just like, okay, I studied, because when you talk in friendship, that's that's ethics, okay? Um, it can be yeah. psychology, but in, in this context, it's it's ethics. Aristotle, in his book of ethics, um, he spent, it's it's comprised of ten books, he's, he's um, two books of it were just on friendships. That's how important it is. And so I figured, okay, review some of my Aristotle as it pertains to because I read, I studied Aristotle a lot. And so, yeah. review some of it and applies. It's an amalgamation of his views and my views of friendship, and it gets into trust and all that sort of thing. So I figured, as I'm writing the paper, I'm exploring. That's the whole reason I'm trying to find out what what what, what can I come up with, what I think, and. Um, I didn't know what my conclusion was going to be. I mean, I've already come up with my conclusion because I did my outlines and I thought it all out and I have it in my head. Now I just have to work it out so it's nice because I would try to write it in academic style as if I had to turn it into a professor or whatever, so I do my best to do that. It's a little hard because I have nobody to share 
nobody that's philosophically trained to sit there and, and, and shoot my ideas back and forth. So it's very difficult to do in that sense. Um, so I'm doing the best I can. But the conclusion I reached is very unsettling. I come to the conclusion whether, they're whether their intentions are going to be malevolent or benevolent. Um, they're not going to be our friends. No. If, if understanding, totally what, agree with given the definition of what friendship is, whatever, um, there's not going to be open contact like here we are, we're here, you know, we're going to have a nice um, open discussion and, and share information of knowledge. Um, I hope I'm wrong, but but given my analysis of it's my my conclusion is interesting, but also the process I think of, of how I reached my conclusion is, is what's the road of how I got there, and uh, I was surprised at what I came up. I, fi I figured certain things might occur, but it's like, well, what about this? What about that? I kept on asking, challenging my own um, propositions, and I was just startled at the conclusion that I've reached. And I don't like my conclusion, but uh, so when you read it, it won't it won't be a happy. It's not a happy paper, but it's an it'll be an important paper because um, you have a lot of people um, saying, you know, they're superior, so they've evolved into this high sort of level of technology, and in order to do so, they have to learn the art of cooperation, and so if they've, they've learned to cooperate, they're going to have a superior sort of morality. And um, no. my, my simple answer is morality has nothing to do with it. There's a lot of other No, it has nothing to do with it at all. Uh, has to, there's a lot more of things that, scientific deal. To yeah, me, well, it's well, more science and that's cool. Well, and, so for the first, the very first simple counter counter argument is, you know, yeah, they learn to cooperate, but they learn to cooperate amongst themselves. They don't have to cooperate like with ants. Like right, ants. and so and there's a lot of other things I, I bring in. So I'm not trying to be argumentative in, in a pedestrian sense, but I have to be argumentative in a philosophical academic sense. Ar argumentative meaning I have to consider other sorts of, of viewpoints and be, cr and be critical. Critical also in its classic sense does not mean you're putting something down, but you're, you're, you're analyzing and entertaining certain sorts of viewpoints. And so I, I've, I've done all that, but I have to complete my paper. Saying I can't sit there and you know, write it for 10 years, right? So um, I'm doing the best I can so, so I don't sit there doing it forever. And so but that's the conclusion I've reached, and it's it's really unsettling. I don't like I don't like. Well, my I appreciate it. I I, I, pre I know you don't like it, but you know I'd rather hear the truth. But at least I at least sense, I already sense the truth. So that's why people that embrace it shock me so much. Yeah, I think you'll appreciate it, whether you agree with me or not. Um, the point is, it'll stimulate good conversation, and it'll hopefully yeah. it'll raise points that, like, you know what. I've never thought of it that way. He raises some good points. This needs further thought, at least to that, even if somebody doesn't agree with me. Um, it should stimulate their thought process to consider things that they haven't considered before, you know. And yeah. so I'm hoping I'm wrong. I'm still, I'm still, as I'm working on my paper, I'm trying, to, I'm trying to find, okay, can I come up with a, you know, viewpoint? Yeah, they, you know, they can be friendly to us and, and work with us as equals and whatever. And, um Oh, they're faking it anyway. They're not, not, not going to really be our friends. I got sorry. It's not going to happen. Not friendship. I don't think. I think theirs is more working, working relationship. There is no friendship. There the working like relationship that. will be a very dangerous one. That's called the friendship yeah. um, of. I talk about that. What Aristotle calls a friendship of utility. If there's a working oh, exactly. relationship, sides need need each other. That's going to end very badly. History and our our history shows that it does because the utility factor. Um, is incidental. It's not a permanent quality of friendship. And after a while, it'll wear out. And when it wears out, 
bad things always happen in our history. For instance, um, yeah. when the Nazis I've already got it in mind. Yeah, yeah, when they collaborated with with the, 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 the they had the yeah. non-aggression pact. Well, after that, you know, Hitler turned on. You know, after three years, he broke the pact, and then he started fighting. And then the, the Americans and the Soviets had a friendship of utility. Well, we got a common en- enemy. Let's use each other. Um, and share share our knowledge to to fight a common common enemy. But once that happened, what happened? We ended up in a cold war because it wasn't really a yeah. true friendship. Same thing with Bin Laden. We helped Bin Laden, the CIA Bin Laden, whatever. But it was it was only a friendship of utility. We needed him and certain people to fight other people. But then once that utility factor wore off, what happened? We turned on each other because it wasn't based on a true friendship. And I, I explain right. what what I mean by that. And so. If we're only, you know, if, if we develop a friendship with aliens just because of some sort of, well, we both need each other for this, that's going to be a very dangerous situation for us because they're more advanced than us. And so, um, and also, don't you think they realize they're, they're not thinking what I'm thinking? So they realize we're going to be dangerous mm-hmm. to them. So, because we um, are physically dangerous. <laughs> yeah, we're dangerous to ourselves, for Christ's sake. Very Why wouldn't we turn on them? Too. We turn on each other. So yeah. there's there's no reason for them to think that <coughs> we're we're going to you know um we're, we're going to to help them there's nothing that that we need that we can that they can't take surreptitiously and that's what they're doing so i guess back to ghosts yeah. i kind of wonder if there are creatures that are kind of uh like that too i'm always intrigued going back to the paranormal about you'll notice Always ask about shadow people. What are your views? Yeah. I know everybody says, well, we really don't know, but I mean, you know, what's I your intention? What are shadow people? It just intrigues me because I had a relative who told me how him and his wife saw shadow, just like, you know, a few weeks ago, and they saw shadow people in the middle of the day, you know, and it wasn't in the corner of the eye, just flat on. And he asked me, what is it? I said, I don't know. You know, and I was wondering, well, do you have any. I don't know. Yeah, I have a. Well, when I was a kid, I saw a DJ, Dastardly John standing there, and he had a black hat, black... Anyway, he looked like a man in black, but when I was a kid, there was no term man in black. And he's tall right, yeah. and he had a black cloak and a big kind of a wide-brim hat. You know, the the usual weird clothes that the men in black, the ones that are vintage that they wear. And, uh... Some of these shadow think, people look like the watching. men in black, kind of? Like watching. They're just watching. They're getting That's information. Weird. I think they might go back and forth in time because they do look out of place. They dress strange, or they they're out of place. And uh, they don't seem like ghosts to me, though. Huh? Like no, they they're seem not like ghosts. more interdimensional, kind of like they're yeah. Like, to me, they're check. more interdimensional. Maybe maybe time travelers. They're more along yeah. the line of that. Yeah, maybe. And maybe the shadow is just like the after effect. Like we can only see their shadow, but maybe there's more to that, but we can't see it. Oh, yeah, yeah, maybe they're coming and going so fast that we just see what's left of the shadow or something. <laughs> that's a weird thing to think, though, like there might be these interdimensional. Yeah, that's a weird thing. No, be- besides the, the the classic, you know, grays and others, that they, we have these interdimensional, what we call shadow people. They could be just interdimensionals, and they're they're checking us out. That's that's just bizarre to it's think about. It's weird. I don't know. It's just, it's creepy, but just. <laughs> Oh God! <laughs> I'm glad about this show. It's a great show. Thank you for letting me oh, be on the show. So and I hope, much, I hope the listeners Take enjoyed time. it because I know I have, and you are absolutely been. wonderful with the guest, and the guest is just awesome. You got you did a good job of picking um, out a guest. Awesome job. 
Thank you so much, Adrian. I wish you a good night, and God bless you. And I'm just glad that everything's turning a corner for us. I really feel that. I feel like something in our lives is just going so positive and forward, you know. So it has been a much of suffering, but, you know, there's always just something great that comes after that. Let us hope. That's true. Thank you so much, Sean. I'll let you go so you can make your final announcements. I'll, I'll see you. Thank you, Adrian. See you later. Okay. Good night, Shar. Thank you. Okay. Good night. So, everyone, thank you so much for listening to Paranormal and the Sacred. We are here every Friday night, 6 p.m. Pacific Standard Time. And remember, next week we have Ed and Marshall Becker. These people are awesome, and they wrote the. And then uh, Ed Becker wrote the book True Haunting, and it's a, one of those books you just have to read. I've read it three times so far. Excellent. Excellent. So. They're wonderful guests, and uh, so we'll see you next week, and God bless you, and I want to thank everybody for listening in. You're you're just amazing. You stick with the show, and uh, I hear from you later, and um, I just want to know I appreciate it. Thank you, everybody in chat. Uh, thank Tiffany, Claudette, visitors, John, and thank you, Adrian, again, for being a perfect co-host. God bless you. Love you very much. And take care, everybody, and I will close out with Donna Summer's song, Let's Love You, Baby.